0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, very, very happy and excited to be here, and you will too, because what we are doing here in this episode is a special Academy Award episode that will, I think, and I hope, inspire you and make you feel great after you listen because I'm doing something a little different today, something I've never done before in over 130 episodes. I'm going to take two of my favorite episodes, edit them down, and present them as one episode for you as my special Oscar edition episode, because the Oscars are happening this coming weekend, and we'll all want to comment and talk about what's happening, and the controversy about how there are no African-American actors or actresses nominated for the second year in a row. But more importantly, the reason why I'm doing this episode is because the two men that I'm featuring today, David Hill, the former senior executive vice president of News Corporation, and Reggie Hudlin, the former president of BET and producer-director of such movies as House Party, and producer of Boomerang, and director of Boomerang, producer of Django Unchained, and numerous other things, they both came together this year to produce this year's Academy Award show, so I thought it only fitting to do a special episode highlighting them, their accomplishments, their amazing stories, and you'll get an insight into these two men who are working behind the scenes to bringing the world the Academy Awards 2016 telecast. And I want to thank you all for listening and always being so supportive. I really appreciate it. I can't even tell you enough how great it is to hear from you all. And some of the people I've heard from I can't even mention because they're high-level people who wouldn't want to be told that they listen to my show on the podcast. But they've sent some really wonderful messages this week that have really, really made me feel wonderful about what we do here. And we do this for you. We do this so that you can hear the stories of people who started just like all of you wherever you are and worked their way up to the highest levels of their business. So before I go into these two podcasts, as I always like to do, I always like to tell a cold open, something relating to what I'm going to do in the podcast. I don't really know what I'm going to say. As you know, those of you who listen to this, it just comes to me, and I'm sitting here on my couch with two of my producers here, Alex and Kazra. And you should see Alex here. It's unbelievable, he's sitting in my chair. The guy has a beard that makes Merlin Olson look like Brad Pitt. It's unbelievable. It's this huge beard. You could literally lose three sandwiches in that beard. It's incredible. (laughs) And Kazra has the posture of the letter Q as he's sitting on the chair there. But it doesn't matter. They're staring at me. We're here. We're trying to get stuff done, and I listened to both cold opens for both episodes, and I love them, but I thought, you know what? I'm not going to rehash those. I'll just tell you a little story about how it relates to these two guests, and I'll share this with you. The other day, I had the good fortune of spending a lot of time with Irvin Magic Johnson. I did an event for one of my sponsors from the past, Global Cash Card. And I had booked Magic Johnson to do a motivational speech for their company and take pictures and sign things. And one of the things that Magic Johnson preached, which I love the way he worded it, it was so simple and so wonderful, yet so profound and so much relates to David Hill and Reggie Hudlin and he essentially said to myself and the group he said if you want to be successful in your personal life and your professional life it's very simple two words over deliver and I watched this man speak to this crowd of about 200 executives of the highest level of this company. And he was contracted to do a 30-minute speech and a 45-minute meet and greet where he took photos with the company members. That was what he was contracted to do. But he got there a half an hour early. He met with the company presidents, their kids, for a half hour before that in a private room. He shook their hands. He talked to them about sports, the Lakers, the Dodgers. He took pictures with the kids. He signed over 15 jerseys. And those owners and their children walked out of there like, this is the greatest day of our lives. And that day hadn't even started yet. And then he just took five minutes alone to regroup. And I brought him around to where the company was gathered. And he asked me again, tell me again a little blurb about the company. I told him he said tell me the theme of this year's conference I told him and then I told him what was happening at the moment because the owner of the company was bringing on his son who had been paralyzed in a diving accident in the ocean and that son of his had lost the will to live was despondent and within a few short years came to the company and became the highest-selling salesperson at Global Cash Card. He over-delivered. But his father was introducing him and he was very emotional. He was crying. And I thought it'd be right to tell magic what was happening because he's going into a situation, he's behind a closed door, he doesn't know. And I told him, and he said, thank you, no problem, I got it covered. And Magic proceeded to go on, and he told his person who was responsible for his wardrobe and his suit and the details of everything to walk toward the stage at 25 minutes so he would know that he would have five minutes left. The guy walked to the stage and stood there, and magic waved him off. That was twenty five minutes into the speech. But magic kept going. Forty minutes, forty five minutes, fifty minutes, fifty five minutes, an hour. He was contracted for a thirty minutes speech. And then at the end of his speech, he said, You know, I'm having a good time. Let's do something special. Everybody take your business cards and pass them down the roads to the front and put them on the stage. I'm going to pick some cards randomly. Let's have some fun. Okay, I'm going to pick this card out and I'm going to sign a jersey over to the person who wins this. He picks a card out, calls the person. They're ecstatic. They come, he signs, they take a picture. Great. And he says, you know, Kobe's retiring. I have a couple of tickets to a Laker game I want to give away. Picks another card. Another person wins. They're ecstatic. And he says, you know what? I happen to have two floor seats that I go to the Laker game. They're worth $4,000 each. And there's a game coming up that I don't have anybody to bring. So I'm going to pick a random name out of here, and I'm going to have somebody sit on the floor with me right next to the Laker bench. Picks a card out little girl wins, comes up, taking pictures with a little girl, ecstatic. And he's just about to wrap up. You think everything's wrapped up, and the woman that's helping him from the company, he says, you know what, you've been so nice helping me and getting all these cards together and whatever. Here's two seats to a Laker game, too. And he finished up his speech And I realized that he over-delivered. He was supposed to stand on stage for 45 minutes. He was up there for like an hour and a half, signing, taking photos with 200 people. Over-delivered again. But what I want to share with everybody that relates to David Hill and Reggie Hudlin about his over-delivering is a story that Magic told that blew me away that shows what everybody in life can do if they put their mind to it. He talked about how he was from a poor family in East Lansing, Michigan, but he was a good basketball player. He worked hard at basketball. It's the only thing he did well, and he gave it his full attention and practiced as much as he could. And he was poised as a middle school student to go into the number one highest-ranked basketball high school program In Michigan right around his hometown really excited about it and then court ordered busing happened and then he had to go to a white school that was the worst basketball program in the state but he said to himself I'm gonna work hard I'm gonna set an example I'm gonna be a leader I'm gonna over deliver and I'm gonna help these people win even though they've never won a championship and sure enough at the end of his run at that high school they won the state championship. Then Magic was choosing a college. could go anywhere. Met with Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, Roy Williams, John Calipari. But he wanted to stay close to home. So he chose Michigan State, a school that hadn't won a championship in God knows how long. They weren't a great team at all. They certainly didn't have a coach like any of those other coaches. But he went in there and he said to himself, I'm going to win we're going to win the championship. And his last year at Michigan State, he went up against a team that was 33-0, led by Larry Bird at Indiana State. And wouldn't you know, they won the NCAA championship. He overdelivered. delivered Then he got drafted by the Lakers. His rookie season, he gets there. He's always been a leader, always over-delivered, but... He's on a team with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Worthy, all the greatest players in the world. But they hadn't won a championship in over a decade. He wanted to lead, but he didn't know how to lead. He was wondering what he should do that wouldn't step on people's toes. He got the practice schedule. It was 10 a.m. every day. He thought to himself, I'm going to get up and get there at 7 a.m. Started getting there at seven a.m. practicing, the coaches would roll in at nine, nine thirty, they'd see him. Other players would get there at ten. Practices would start three days in a row. And then what happened? The coaches had a meeting. They said, Hey guys, Magic's coming here at seven o'clock in the morning. You guys are coming at ten. Well, we're gonna change things around. We want everybody to come here at seven o'clock in the morning. Yes, they were pissed off at him, but he was leading by example. He was over-delivering. He was trying to set an example of how to win and get to the next level. And sure enough, the team gelled and became great. They went to the finals against the Philadelphia 76ers. They were up three games to two going to Philadelphia, tough place to play. And they got the news that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had sprained his ankle. He couldn't play. All the players were down. How are they going to win in Philadelphia? Kareem probably wasn't going to play for the seventh game, but there was a seventh game. Everyone was down. They saw their chance to win diminished. Not Magic. Magic got to the private jet early, sat in Kareem's seat, and as everybody walked by, he told them, listen, I'm going to carry you guys on my back. We're going to win this. Loosened everybody up. They went to Philadelphia, and Magic played center among other positions, as a rookie in that game in Philadelphia. He scored 42 points, had 15 rebounds and 7 assists, and the Lakers won the world championship for the first time in over a decade. He overdelivered, And so when I think of David Hill and his career as an executive at Fox, where he launched so many amazing programs and created and brought to America that box in the corner of every sports telecast you see and all the different technological advances and all the great Super Bowls he's produced. And Reggie Hudlin, who, as a guy from East St. Louis, one of the worst areas in the country, let alone the world, Got out, went to Harvard, wrote 10 minutes of a script, house party, shot it, and sold it as a young man and was one of the most successful movies of all time, of a low-budget movie, and then recently being the president of BT and producing Django Unchained with Quentin Tarantino, an amazing movie. And now both of them penned and tabbed to produce this year's Academy Award. You can see that wherever you are in your life or your business, whatever company you're at, it's pretty obvious and it's pretty clear. If you want the kind of career that Magic Johnson, David Hill, or Reggie Hudlin have, you have to over deliver.
1: Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now, huh? buddy?
0: So just go to barrykatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much again for clicking on that Amazon banner at the barrykatz.com website in the podcast section. Every time you click on that banner, they miraculously give a few shekels to the Barry Katz Jewish Boy College Fund. All right, without further ado, I'm going to introduce the first guest today, and I know you're going to like what he has to say a lot. David Hill is known as the Senior Executive Vice President of News Corporation, He joined Fox Sports in December 1993 when News Corp wrested the rights to the National Football League from CBS, and he was charged with building a network, quality sports division, literally from the ground up. The legendary NFL television analyst John Madden, once on board at Fox, christened it Fox Sport as the only property in the portfolio initially was the NFL. Following the highly successful launch of the NFL on Fox, with its same game, new attitude, approach, and revolutionary Fox box, constant score and time graphic, the National Hockey League was added, and with it came the Fox track's glowing puck, two early production enhancements which became the hallmarks of Fox sports under David Hill. Working closely with Chase Carey Hill, next started the Fox Sports Net a hugely successful regional sports network business, and was then moved to run the Fox Network, which was at the time languishing in a poor number four position. With shows like David E. Kelly's Ally McBeal, Seth MacFarlane's Family Guy, and the introduction of serial reality shows such as When Animals Attack, the network quickly assumed the number two position. Number one in the demo. Hill continued running Fox Sports, which by then was blossoming, now carrying Major League Baseball, Super Bowl, Stanley Cup Finals, World Series, and was legitimately Fox Sports, which has been America's number one sports network for 14 consecutive years under his direction. Assuming the position of chairman and CEO of the Fox Sports Media Group, which is News Corp's U.S.-based sports group, which includes Fox Sports, Fox Sports Network, Speed, Fuel TV, Fox Soccer, Fox Deportes, the Big Ten Network, and the hugely popular FoxSports.com, which recently set a record for monthly traffic totaling over 50 million unique users, and since then has doubled that. Hill has been hailed as a visionary, credited with launching U.S. sports television into the modern age. In short order, and despite initial skepticism, the Fox box became a ubiquitous staple for all sports broadcasts, and Hill is named on the patents for the yellow first-down markers for football, the glowing puck, and baseball's in-base microphones. In his role as Senior Executive Vice President of News Corp, he focused on programming, marketing, digital initiatives, and other opportunities, utilizing his extensive television experience and expertise over the worldwide breadth of the company's operating units. After starting as a 17-year-old copy boy at a Sydney newspaper, The Daily Telegraph. I know you're going to love him a lot. This guy is bigger than life. And one of the most respected executives in the world,
2: ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Hill, Mr. Ketch. I'm. It's a pleasure and an honor. I've never seen an office with with, with a, a, a Jackson Pollock on the wall as as you walk in. There's ladies a- and gentlemen, out there in podcast land, we're sitting on the 433rd floor of this luxurious office building in uh, in Beverly Hills, and we can see the ocean. We can see. LAX we can see downtown LA we can see Dodger Stadium it is remarkable you can see if you actually have got good eyesight you can see Santa Barbara it is it is <laughs> it is fabulous
0: what's odd is we're sitting right in front of the on deck circle for the Boston Red Sox World Series in 2007 the MLB game and Fox was broadcasting That's that true. and they were so gracious to me and they gave me wonderful seats
2: now, listen. I just want to say something about what about what you were doing in your office in New York. Um, I was very fortunate when I first came to Los Angeles. I was taken under under the wing of of Aaron Spelling, and and it was uh, and it was when I was doing the network, and 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 he was
0: what was he working on at the time? Well, the big show that he, he was working well, on. Well,
2: he wasn't working on nine hundred two one zero and Amuro's Place, and we didn't have too much that was going on. So I went to see him, and and what had happened? He had lost interest in the shows. And the shows were becoming very cartoony and, and as a result the, the the ratings were dropping. So I went to see him and, and begged him to, to become back involved with the shows and, and to develop the story arcs and get back into the characterization. And he did. And and the shows ran for another three years. And it was the genius that, that, that Spelling had. But but as a result I would go around to his place. we both smoked pipes and would sit there and, and, and imbibe. I'd drink red wine and he'd drink vodka. And I'd always have to get a car to drive me home. But he, he, he would give me these little tips, and one of the best ones he ever got, I, I, I ever got from him, when he auditioned actors and actresses, he, would, he wouldn't be in the audition session. He would watch the tapes, and he'd watch it with the audio off. Wow. And, and I said, why would you do that? He said, it's very simple. He said, a bad actor, when they're waiting for a line, a rehearsing, they're waiting for the prompt, and then they're about to deliver the line they have. A great actor will make you believe they're actually listening. And he said, and that's what I look for. And I've used that technique ever since. And it's interesting you use that technique. And I,
0: n- I swear I never knew you that. You never
2: met Aaron Spelling?
0: Never met him. Isn't
2: that interesting that that, ev- that the guys that make it in this business, and there's so many in the 20 years that you and I have been in, in Los Angeles that, that, that have kind of like flared like a meteor and then suddenly whoosh, gone for. But the guys that that have survived and made it and and enjoy it have all got these little kind of things that are theirs, their techniques, what they use to discover either talent or story or whatever it is.
0: No, it's true. It's amazing. We're going to talk a lot about your uh, stuff in that area, too. And I was just going to say. Uh, since CAA is right, you can see CAA from across the way here, Creative Artists Agency. Isn't it interesting
2: they've got a skull and crossbones flag on the, it, <laughs> I, I've never been up so high to see it. It's unbelievable. Yes, they, they'd it's, be so obvious sen- about they're, it, they're, isn't it? They're sending you know, a message. You know, normally, normally, they'd keep that quiet, but there it is. <laughs> skull and, and I guarantee it's there all year. It's not just for Halloween. <laughs> but I remember in their old place,
0: Aaron Spelling used to come in to bring in the commission checks. And they had this tradition that they did. When Aaron Spelling was downstairs, they'd get the tip-off call, and they'd send an inter-office email or call everybody, and everybody would come to the balconies of the old CAA building, which was on Wilshire and Santa Monica. Right, right, right. And when he walked through the elevator, they would all applaud and give him a standing (laughs) ovation when he came in the building.
2: And I can't think of anyone that would deserve it more. He, He was wonderful.
0: Yeah. So let's go back because this podcast is very inspirational and people love to hear the stories of how people start and how they go from zero zero to where they are. So take me way back to where you're growing up and before you ever had any thought about anything in entertainment or television, what was the first thing that happened that sort of sparked your interest or so you said, hey, I want to do this or I want to do that? And where were you in Australia and how did it all happen?
2: Well, I, I'll keep it brief because- Don't it, keep it brief. It, well, it, my dad, I was born in, a, in, a, in a, a, a city called Newcastle, which is 120 miles or 100 miles north of Sydney. And it's a steel and coal town. And my dad was, was a coal miner. He started as a coal miner when he was 14. And then by the time he was 18, he moved to the steel mills. Uh, very much like Pittsburgh, it was a, a you know, very similar kind of industry and whatever.
0: And so you were, you were poor growing up, your yeah. family didn't have a lot of money, yeah. and how many children in the family? had
2: uh, two younger brothers. <laughs> Got it. But, but it was, and it was interesting, dad was a miner, and my, my mom's father was a pit boss at, at another colliery, and all Scottish. The, I don't the,
0: know what a colliery is, I'm a sorry. Colliery is a
2: colliery is, is a coal mine. Oh, I didn't know that. That's what, that's what it's, it's in, in or a pit. Okay. That's what it's not. It's a coal mine, and uh, uh, you know we we moved around, and and uh, and I was I was uh, I, I didn't take to school at all. Well, I was uh, I was uh, a right little shit, and um, Dad was was very uh, played pro- semi professional soccer. He'd work in the mill all week for the equivalent of twenty bucks, and he'd get paid twenty bucks for playing soccer he was a boxing champ and a wrestling champ. And, and so it kind of like I grew up in a family where – or in, in a culture where sport was uh, regarded as, as, as a worthy kind of application for your time. And, and so my brothers and I, um, who both turned into great academics, um, that, that we would – when we weren't kind of like going to school, uh, would, would play sports. I then discovered boxing and then discovered surfing, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Anyway, uh, about 15, um, and, and me and, and the education is not, not sailing along terrifically, and I was very fortunate. I was put in a remedial English class, 4-H, which would have been around about uh, 10th grade, I think. And we were taught by a, by a teacher called Mr. Flake, whose who'd previous job had been in the New South Wales prison system. And so he went from prisoners to the, this 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 motley collection of schoolboys with whose whose knuckles would drag on the on the ground as they came into class, and and he he had this wonderful love of of, of American novelists. So so I fell in love with with the John Dos Passos and, and the and the Steinbecks and the Hemingways, and and from there to the Aldous Huxleys, and 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 it was. It was post World War One literature and post World War Two.
0: And before that, though, you were literally you're talking about a remedial class. You were you were you would say probably you were uh, as you would you probably joke about yourself. You are not really functioning in with your other classmates, and you were at the lowest level. But then you find these American novelists, and you
2: I fell in love with I fell in love with, with with literature, and I want to write, and so I go from the lowest of the low to to, to doing English honors the next year. You and went I,
0: to honours the next year.
2: Yeah, and, and it was um, – and the guy I sat next to did the same thing, a guy called Rowan John Carl, who became one of Australia's leading communists. Um, and we both went from the, the remedial class to uh, to doing honours the next year. I, I realized there was no way I was going to get to university. My parents couldn't afford it, and, and my academic record was such that I couldn't get a scholarship, so so that was it. So I had to find a job, and uh, and the options were the pits or the mills or or whatever it was. And I suddenly there was this this kind of stroke of fortune, that there was I suddenly saw and and I hated school I really didn't like it I liked the sports but but that was about it, it was a careers day to to, to discover journalism and I thought well this would be great a trip into the into the city this is fabulous, so I walked in and it was in back in those days in Sydney there were two morning newspapers two afternoon newspapers this was an afternoon newspaper. And it was, the, the, the presses were rolling. And to me, it was heaven. I walked in to the, the newsroom where there was this of blue smoke. It was, people were shouting, it looked like something out of the front page, hold the presses, copy boy, blah, 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 blah. And the building is shaking and the presses are going and there's the smell of pot lead mixed with cigarettes. And, and I just thought I was in heaven. So I came home that night and said to mom, I'm going to become a newspaper reporter. Mum immediately burst into tears, and I said, "Why?" She said, "It's a, a, you, you'll never get the job." So I sat and I. She wrote. She said, "You'll never get the never job. Never get the job. It's impossible to get a job." So I just wrote to every newspaper in Australia, um, uh, and I got a letter back.
0: From Where did you get the persistence from? Because from what you're telling me, desperation,
2: desperation, Barry. It was that. Uh, have you ever been down a coal mine? No. It's not fun. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's 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 not. I first I went down my first pit when I was five or six, and I actually got to like them. But but I'd hate to work down there, so I just kept doing it. And then a guy called Leo Basser. and as 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 fate would have it, his great his nephew Greg Basser, is is been in Los Angeles now for a year, and he's the chairman of, uh, of of a big movie production company. Anyway, and so I long story short, I got a job as a copy boy. After four months as a copy boy. What's a copy boy? Copy boy runs around, gets it's like in the it's the it's the equivalent of the mail room God. for William Morris, and that and that you that that you run around, you get sandwiches, mm-hmm. you 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 smuggle scotch up to the to whatever, and
0: alcohol seems to be a running theme so far. Oh, absolutely, okay. very much so. Right.
2: It, it's uh, it it's, it's it's a key part of the Bible, I've found that, <laughs> so I found. So I think that it's the new or the old Testament, it's, it's both, and it, it, therefore it's spiritual to mention it. If you'll pardon the horrible pun, um, <laughs> and so I worked in, in, in and I, uh, so I became a reporter. Uh, and there you did it for you ship.
0: So you, well, you went from that job, and they That's promoted you. Well, how did
2: you get promoted? Well, I, I sat for an examination, and there was a, a lot of kids, and they had two positions, and I got one of them, and 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 it was how to write, and blah 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 blah. Anyway, so I got that, and then so I, I was in newspapers until I got, I was then. 17, I think, 17, 18, and when I was 19, so I was a second-year cadet, and I was sent south of Sydney as holiday relief uh, to the Daily Telegraph. And so I, this is another steel town, another coal town, um, which, which, by the way, I love because it's part it's and parcel of me and I love the people. Um, and I bumped into all the people from the local television channel. Long story short, I was offered a job in, in the television channel and I walked into the newsroom, and I saw a guy cutting film, and I fell in love. I fell in love with television then and there. So, Tell
0: uh, me how they cut, were cutting film back then.
2: Well, it was with, like, with, with the equivalent of a razor blade chunk. And then what really got me, what the thing was, was that back then, the film editor would cut the film. This is for a news broadcast. Cut it and tape it together. It, tape, it, tape it so that it had continuity and told a story. And then the journalist would sit down and write the script so it matched, so that that you would start writing. And so that that at at one minute, 12 in, if there's a close-up of Barry Katz, you said, you know, theatrical impresario, Barry Katz, being led away in chains (laughs) for fill-in-the-blank. And and that seemed to me to be the most exciting thing to do, to write to that discipline. So you had to make sense of the script. Now, of course, the script is written and the film has got to it, which which I, I think is, is, is kind of like a step down in, 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 in television journalism, but there it is. So I was there for a couple of years, and then, then I applied for another job, and I just worked in, in newsrooms. I went from being a, a, I, I then started do, doing a lot of stuff on camera, from there, I was wait, wait.
0: Waiting. So, timeout. So, you're behind the camera, and oh, I'm writing
2: ha- scripts. Yeah.
0: How do you decide, and how do you get to the point where you want to go in front of the camera, and how do you get that gig from being behind the camera?
2: Well, in that in those days, the newsroom was so small. Did you have a, a face for radio back then, or um, were you was, were you as handsome as you are now? <laughs> thank you, thank you, and good evening. Um, <laughs> the, it was it, it, but the newsroom was so small. There was like five people in it. And we had to knock out a 30-minute bullet in a day, so it was if you were there with a the cameraman, you did the interview, and then you topped it, and it was simple. It was actually simpler to top and tail something, da 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 da, and 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 here's Barry, and the interview, and then the tag, than sitting there and writing a script. So I just started doing it, and um, I had the, the greatest stroke of luck. The guy I that that I don't think we ever shared an apartment but we're very close friends. His name's Norman Lloyd. He went on to become the senior cameraman for CBS 60 Minutes. He and Ed Bradley teamed up in Vietnam, and Ed brought him back to the States. So he became, and he was a brilliant, brilliant news cameraman. And and I, I developed this technique when I was on camera of talking to Norm. So wherever I was, whatever I was doing, whether it was a report about politics or economics or police rounds or whatever, I would talk to Norm. So I developed a very conversational on camera style as opposed to a stylized, you know, end of sentence period, new paragraph, whatever. And so when I, I went to work for a big for a major network, ABC, which was sort of then well still does, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And so I started doing a lot of stuff for them. And then then I, I they, they had a part of the newsroom was making documentaries. So I, I loved that. I went out and made you know eight, nine minutes, ten minute documentaries. And then a, a commercial channel approached me, and and they wanted me to host the Australian Today Show, which I did for about three or four weeks. But I didn't. So
0: did you? do you understand how? Did you understand why you were moving the needle at that time? Like why you were passing other people that had worked longer and had been around uh, longer? No, no, I
2: never thought about it. It was it was just a guy say, "Listen, you 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 you're doing the seven o'clock news, um, but we." But it was—it wasn't like that. It wasn't. It was, the newsroom was like a commune, and and one day I'd be reading the news. The next day I'd be in at six o'clock, being chief of staff and assigning stories, and then because two of the, the reporters couldn't write, I would write their copy for them. So it was—it was never a big whoops. The, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me was that I was uh, out with a friend, with my, my girlfriend. Uh, at a dinner party. How old were you then? Oh, I don't know, 24, 25. Okay. I'm totally hammered. Totally, absolutely kind of like, thump. And but More of the
0: running theme
2: of alcohol. There is indeed. And, and my, my girlfriend said, aren't you reading the late news tonight? And I said, no, 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 no. It's my day off. She said, I'll, I'll check. So she rang the newsroom and said, is David there? They said, no, no, no we're expecting him any any minute or he might be down in makeup. So she's gone. Holy shit! Now, what I should have done was say that. Oh my god, I've just undergone a do-it-yourself appendectomy, and I'm sorry I can't come in to read the bullet. But for whatever reason, I went in. So it went through makeup, and 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 like I'm, I'm history. I'm I'm flyblown and legless, and and and. and, and Potential. Fly blown and legless, and and the potential of speaking Ewok is very good. <laughs> so it it, it it was. This is long. The days before teleprompt, and so that you got your copy and you kind of like memorize the you, you, you eyes down, eyes up, throw to the tape, whatever. And so, uh, good evening. Here is the Channel Seven late news, um, read by Alex um No, it's another story. No, but but and and, and here are the headlines. And then I looked down and I suddenly thought, I can see my cheeks. And I thought, shit, this is going on in my brain as I'm reading in, in, in Syria yesterday, so on, so on, so on. and my brain's saying, I can see my cheeks. And I thought, well, that's the stupidest thing. So every time then as I went through the bulletin, I, I, I became, have you ever looked down? You look down you can see your cheeks. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Uh-huh. But not good when you're reading the news in front of two <laughs> or three million people. And so I get to the – and then I stupidly got to the end of the bulletin and I thought, thank God, I've only got 30 seconds to go with the weather. And so – and and the weather now and in northern Victoria, there's going to be frogs and frosts. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll read that again. There will be – I got it wrong the a second. And then I said, oh, shit. And mm-hmm. I go, oh, shit. <laughs> so, so I got through the bulletin. So, so no, it was just – it was just – And you still had a job after still that. had a job, yeah. So what's
0: and, the next step in your career?
2: Well, and and then – uh then I got sick and tired of being on camera. Why? Well, it, it 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 happened because at a Christmas party. And I had I had um I'd uh
0: There's alcohol at Christmas parties. There
2: is indeed. There, there is there is indeed. Uh and I've never gone to a Quaker Christmas party, but I'd imagine there's probably alcohol there too. <laughs> so I'm at this Christmas party and this guy comes up to me and, and he says yeah, you've had a fantastic year this year, really great year this year. He said, I'm going to make sure you – And because I was doing commercials. I was doing a lot of voiceover. I did, did voiceover for promos. I did everything. Uh, next on Seven is for followed by McHale's <laughs> Um And 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 so I would – and so he said, you're going to have a bigger year next year. And I thought, oh, thanks very much. And so I had no idea who he was. So my boss was a guy called Jack Ma. He was a news editor, which, which I worked for. So I said to Jack, who's that guy over there? And Jack said, oh, that's Howard Gardner. And I said, who's he? He said, he's head of sales. I said, so what's he got to do with me? He said, well, he's the one that's got you reading the news and doing the Today Show and all those advertisements that you get to do. He said, well, he's organizing them. So I thought, oh, that's nice. So I've gone home that night to this dreadful apartment that I lived in, and Now, why were you in a dreadful apartment? Because it seemed like
0: you were doing well. Well, I was. It
2: was terrific. But I invested all my money in women and booze. (laughs) And and, and I didn't waste a penny. I I, I didn't waste a penny at all. It was fantastic. I'm sitting in this dreadful apartment. and, And I suddenly thought, if a guy I have no idea, if he doesn't know me, and he has so much influence on my life, this is something that's wrong. And and all it was was on-camera performance. So I thought, hmm, hmm. So three weeks later, I get an offer to do a job back at the ABC for a show called Sports Night, which was uh, an, a, like a 60 Minutes of Sport. Now, I had no interest because I told you I was a coffee boy. Well, the way it went was the smart kids went to finance. The women always went to social. There, there, was, there was no other area for, 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 for women to go. Um, if you were tough, you did police rounds. If you were smart, uh, but not that smart, you did general. And, if your, knuckles, and I, if your knuckles dragged on the ground, you did sports. So I thought, well, I'll only do it for six months. And, and I said, I'm not interested. And I thought, I'm just a reporter. They said, no, you're and direct. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. And, and write my own scripts. They said, yeah, you write your own scripts. So I went into sports. And surprise, surprise, I really liked it. And I liked doing what I was doing, which was doing like mini documentaries. And I liked the people I was working with because as a, as a television reporter, I've been specializing in politics and economics. And and uh, an economist- Which would qualify you to drive any cab in Australia. Correct. And and, and any economist can talk and, and doesn't have to prove anything. Same thing with politicians. In sports, there is a crucible of truth that, that you can say what you like, but- it comes a time, like each weekend, when you have to put up or shut up. And I liked the people. I I I found that there was there was there was a kind of spirituality about them and and about doing the right thing and dedication and discipline and 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 looking out for each other. And it was there, there was there was part and parcel of that world that was lacking in the other parts of of journalism that I'd been doing. And so for that that. I stayed in that longer than I should have because the shows then got into uh, thirty-minute documentaries, and I I would I did I did a bunch of stuff. I went to Russia to shoot some stuff, and I did a lot of uh, adventure stuff. I, I really enjoyed it, climbing mountains and doing stuff. And then the ABC came to me and said, "We want you to do. We want to call it the David Hill Adventure Show." And 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 I said, "Well, yeah, okay, fine. But I won't have the time if I'm going to go and produce and direct." I said, "Oh, no, 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 no." You'll just be the front man, and, and we'll have a team of producers, directors, and we'll fly you in. You can do the piece to camera. And I said, well, I'll write the scripts. They said, oh, no, 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 you won't write the scripts. You'll just narrate the thing. And I thought, shit, I don't really want to do that. That sounds boring. And the money was unbelievably good. It was 37 cents a month. You know, it's a small country. Um, and and I, I, was, I was in two minds, and then my old boss from Channel 7 called call me up and said, do you wanna, you want want to I hear you're unhappy. Do you want to come back to seven? And I said, sure. So I went back to seven to do a bunch of stuff, make docos, did comedies, uh, ended up producing this live show. And then after 12 months there, out of the blue, um, the most incredible things that had ever happened in sports, a guy who was 39, uh, his name was Kerry Packer, went out and hired 60 of the world top cricketers. And it would be like if if a private individual owned NBC, CBS, or ABC, and they would hired what would the equivalent would be 200 NFL players and started their own league. And so obviously he wanted to be televised because Kerry owned a network, the Nine Network in Australia. And out of the blue, he called me up and said, I want you to be the executive producer of this. I'd never done a live production in my life, apart from studios, but I'm never on the road. So I said, yeah, why not? And, um,
0: so you took a job that you had no qualifications for absolutely
2: none, but that's never stopped me in the past, you know, like taking a job that I've had no qualifications for because the alternative is a coal mine. And as we determined at the age of five, it's not a fun place to be. So I, I, um, I, uh, went, moved from Melbourne to Sydney and started doing that. And I loved it. I loved producing. It was the, the, the live thing became a bug. So I worked for Kerry for 11 years, and... Uh,
0: and you brought the telecasts that were probably not highly rated to something that were yeah well, incredible. It, it all worked. it all worked. And so when did you get the call from the states?
2: Well, there was, there was an intervening period, and, and what happened, Kerry sold the network to a guy called Alan Bond that I didn't particularly want to work for. And so when my contract was up, I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd fallen in love with, with uh, a woman. From Nebraska, Joan. And uh, How'd you
0: meet a girl from Nebraska in in, Australia? In a, in a
2: helicopter over the Indian Ocean drinking Bollinger champagne. But that is another story at the at the America's Cup.
0: What's great here this whole podcast, we've only been a little bit through it, is that just this running theme we know as an artist and executive, alcohol has a lot to do with uh, what's going on here. There's
2: there. two there's there's two daughters I wouldn't have that I would never have met Joan. Anyway. <laughs> so so it was that I had no idea what I was gonna do. And and my last job for, uh, for Channel 9 was producing Wimbledon. I love producing Wimbledon. It is just so cool. And, and so Joan had come across. She was living in Phoenix. And uh, we're having a terrific time. And my great friend Jeff Mason, from uh, he's now with ABC, I think. No, ESPN was there. So it was like old home week, and it was terrific. And then I get a phone call, and this guy says, Mr. Murdoch wants to see you. And I said, what about? said, uh, well, I'm not sure, but, but he wants to see you.
0: That would be Rupert Murdoch.
2: And, and, and I said, sure, where? He said, oh, in Los Angeles. And I said, well, just bring us a couple of tickets out to LA. Why not? So we came out here in uh, 88 it would have been. And I was staying down the road. We stayed at the, uh, the Century Plaza.
0: So take me through uh, your first meeting with him. I'm just curious. No, it only you... took
2: three seconds because I walked into his office.
0: Were you nervous? Because you don't seem like the kind of guy who's ever nervous. Was no, you, was no, you, not you,
2: really. No, no, no. Now, did, had, you,
0: did you have a vision of what you wanted to have happen
2: before you had that I had meeting? no idea what he wanted to talk about. Okay. So you can't have a vision. All right. I know. All I know is that he is awesome. Like I was, I, as much in as In three I, minutes, he's awesome? No, no, no. But I knew what he'd done. Like he'd started with this tiny little newspaper in this tiny little state in this tiny little country. And he'd moved that at twenty two like the story of Rupert Murdoch is unbelievable, and it's a story of you know like all the things that 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 make like individuals great and wonderful and it's it, it, it's charisma, but it's it's creativity and it's being able to look around corners and 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 convince other people that 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 you know what to do and how to do it and to take one little newspaper twenty two where the average age on the board of directors then was 56. They were saying, go away, kid. And he said, no, I'm going to take this newspaper and make it great. And he did. And then one newspaper begat another, which begat another, begat another. And then he went from Australia up to, across to the UK. And from the UK, ended up here. And then he ended up buying 20th Century Fox. Hello. So it's not a bad gig for a guy who was in, in his probably early 50s.
0: So take me back. So you're going into his office. So I going to his meeting.
2: office, and he says, good morning. I said, good morning, 10 o'clock. He said, would you like to start a television channel? I said, I'd love to. Where? He said, London. I said, yeah. When do you want to be on the air? He said, next February. And I said, oh, uh, sure. Okay. Why not? And then he went off to take a phone call. And so <laughs> so I, was, I was sent to-, to You to were to sent away after that. <laughs> sent, sent off to an underling. And uh, we negotiated the deal. I said, all I want to be paid is what I was paid in Australia. I said, that's- So you didn't even have a lawyer. You negotiated your own deal. I've never had
0: a lawyer. You've never had a lawyer negotiate a deal for you.
2: Uh, I have in Los Angeles, but up till then, no. Wow. No, no. I just, well, it's just, I've been fortunate that that for the last, uh, let me see, 25, 35 years, I've worked for two guys. Both Australian, both media moguls, both geniuses in their own way. Kerry Francis Bulmore-Packer and Keith Rupert Murdoch. Both straight up uh, wonderful, wonderful, like their handshake is their bond and, and all that stuff. Um, so, you, so, so you launched the network in London. So and I went across and, and, and we started Sky and and that was incredible battles because we were against against all odds. And it was, there was a small group of us, a lot of Australians. Um, and it was very much a te- huge team effort, and we took on the creme de la creme of Britain because they were launching another satellite channel called British Satellite Broadcasting. We were Sky Television. Now I think
0: you should let our audience know, if if I'm not mistaken, Sky was the first ever satellite television channel, wasn't it? Right, it was, and uh, you were launching it, so yes. a visionary situation.
2: Well, it was it was television, but it it, to, it was. That was the problem. Everyone said, oh, it's not television. I said, it is. It's just, it's television, and we have to make it good television and entertaining television. The delivery system really doesn't matter. I said, because no one looks at the back of the television set. And they were getting hung up on how it was getting there. And so we were up against um, BSB, British Satellite Broadcasting. And after a year or two years, we had a million subscribers, and they had 73,000. How long before you became number one and overtook that? Uh, about, it took about two years. And then and then we got that together and we amalgamated with British Satellite Broadcasting. I then started Sky Sports with a bunch of, of terrific guys who I work with from, from BSB. We got the Premier League and we charged for it. We became a subscription service. Which and, was the first subscription service. Yes. And... And... Uh, uh, we started making a lot of money, and it was all good. And, and and to do that, we had to develop a different way of covering soccer and and, and a sports channel and whatever. So so that was it. Um, ESPN was up and running uh, in the States. It had a lot of, in those days, tractor pulling and Aussie rules football. So we got that up and running, and then I got a call from, from uh, the boss in – it was just about 12, 20 years ago this month, and he said, uh, we're going to have a crack at the NFL. I said, what, for Fox? And Fox had only just gone to broadcasting seven days a week. It was on for two Now,
0: hours. he started the Fox network.
2: With Barry Diller.
0: Yeah. And um, so how long after that did he call you to bring sports to Fox? Well, I
2: think the Fox network started in 88 under under Barry, and it grew and developed, Um and there were some incredibly clever people involved in that Jamie Kelner, uh Bobby Greenblatt was there um,
0: who's now the president of NBC yeah
2: uh, and, and like you know what Bob he, he, he I love him to death that when he left Fox and this is spooling along forward, I made the shortest speech I've ever made. I said Bob Greenblatt is the kind of guy that will all say in the not too distant future I knew him when. And it's and it's come to pass anyway.
0: It's so true. It's yeah. so true. So one of the things about so you you took over the initiative to bring sports to Fox.
2: This is no, no no no. I just I can't so I came in and did a pitch, and I I made like a five minute tape to say if Fox got the NFL, which I seriously doubted, uh, that this is how it'd be covered and blah blah blah, and so we get down to the the, the Dallas Cowboys and Commissioner Tagliabue was there. And um, uh, Jerry Jones, uh, Pat from the uh, from the the Denver Broncos, and what was fortunate that they'd just been in England and they'd seen our coverage of soccer, and Jerry said, or football, and Jerry said, God, if you can do it to American football uh, football what you did to soccer, so I had no idea that they'd seen you know the stuff that we'd done, and so very very quickly we get we move forward and. And uh, the NFL gives a contract to Fox. Terry Bradshaw was at CBS. They probably felt he was their third
0: or fourth most valuable guy. But I had heard the stories about you, like, almost just putting your fist down, like, we have got to get Terry Bradshaw. He is our guy. He's the guy that's going to be the key to this whole thing of making this successful. And people were against you. But you fought and fought to have him. T- take me back
2: to those, that time, how that came about. Well, there's, there's Barry, there's a bigger thing, which, which I think was key. Um, in that period, I had effectively six months to, A, build an engineering infrastructure or oversee the building of an engineering infrastructure, which could take up to eight games simultaneously, to build a studio, to build a set, to develop a, a logo, to write the theme music, to hire the trucks, to find a producer for the pre-game show, post-game show, to to to, to the whole, get a PR department. Um, it, it was it was when I look back on it, it was a frightening thing. But I didn't look upon it as frightening. And what happened? When you're faced with you have to get something done because there's no way I could ever ring up Commissioner Tagley and say, look, Commissioner, look, I'm, I'm, uh, we have a few things short here. I haven't quite finished the studio and I'm working on the music and uh, I'm not quite sure about the logo. I never got a chance to second guess. And I believe in this business, the thing that kills more great ideas is the worm of self-doubt. So you get an idea at 2 in the morning You think, God, that's great. By the time you've got to the office in the meeting, you think, oh, they'll laugh at it and they're not going to like it and there's so many things that go wrong. I didn't have that luxury. I had to go, right, that's it. The theme music, da-da-da, da da that came from I was listening to the theme from Batman where I had my son up at Six Flags Magic Mountain riding the Batman ride. And I called George and I said, I love this. It's a minor and no sport is ever uh, the, the piece of music I want Scotty Shreer to write is called Batman's Got a Football Team. That came in August. He presented me with two tapes, and I took the the top thirty-two, put it on the second track, and that that hasn't changed for twenty years. It's probably one of the most recognisable sports themes in the country. But the point was, I didn't I didn't have the luxury of second guessing. So it was, and the reason I hired Terry Bradshaw was the way he walked he he stood up from the desk at CBS and walked across to a screen and he strutted he had this air of confidence, I own this studio what i'm going to say is important, and so it was like howie long Howie long's audition was dreadful his first one and 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 but there was something about the honesty and directness of Howie, and I said to him after he was done i said why did you do it that way? He said, well, well, I did it that way because that's what I thought an analyst on television should be. He just quit the 49ers. He virtually still had number 75 <laughs> on the front, on front of his of his uniform. And I said, no, there's a thing in television. It's a truth drug. It's that lens. It shows you who you are. You just get and do that thing as you are. Is 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 how he wants But you gave him did. another chance. Yeah. why did you give him another because chance? Because I could see there was something there. Uh Jimmy Johnson, Ed Ed Gorin went and 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 talked him into doing it. Ed Gorin, another senior executive. Yeah, uh, Ed, 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 who's lovely. And um uh it, it but there was never an opportunity to go, oh, I wonder if we've done the right thing here.
0: There's no way in hell you were going to make a profit that first year or your second year or your third year. You were looking at it. I think Rupert was a visionary, and he was looking at it like, if we bring in sports, it'll help everything. It's like going into a Costco, like they say, and you go in to get that one thing, and you come out spending $500. Well,
2: the, the architects of, of Fox Sports is Rupert and Chase Carey. And and what it was, that everyone thought that the player was a straight P&L. And that was advertising as opposed to production costs. Um, it wasn't. It was the, 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 the classic story is my father-in-law uh, in Nebraska, Wilbur, lived in Grand Island. And he called me up terrified. And he said, David, yes, Wilbur, uh, Fox isn't on my cable system. I won't be able to see the football. As in, and it's your fault. And I said, Wilbur, by the time the NFL season rolls around, Fox will be on the cable system. Um, so, so what <laughs> happened? Fox went from an afterthought with 80% penetration. The NFL took it to 100% penetration. Now, what the trade-off was, Chase then went and going from little UHF stations to huge thumping VHF stations. So we ended up, as a result of a few swaps with a new world deal, the biggest O&O o group in the country. Explain O&Os to our audience. These are uh, 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 individual stations in individual DMAs that are owned and operated by the network. Explain DMAs. Uh, designated market area. Got it. So it's it's uh, like Los Angeles, San Francisco, whatever. So all of a sudden Fox went from an afterthought to a major player. And as a result that that in that, that what we were able to charge for advertising spots in year one, by year three, it's kind of quadrupled. So it was it that 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 everyone saw what Chase and Rupert had done as a straight P&L. Oh my god, they'll never be able to afford it. And then suddenly three years, what's happened? Fox is now huge. Duh
0: Take me through the story of Fox's first Super Bowl
2: and the opening. I have blanked this out of my memory. It's it's twenty years of therapy has made sure that. that and now, thank you for bringing it back. So all that money. Um, thank you, Doctor Katz. Uh, I, I will now lay down on this couch and 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 contemplate your grandmother's teeth. Um, that 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 I had this very elaborate opening, and it was in in, in New Orleans, and. And I wanted the cameras to start on on the uh, on 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 a paddle wheeler's paddle, and then zoom back and 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 it was there in the arm of the mighty Mississippi, blah blah blah, and then across and whatever. So we're doing the rehearsal. I'm sitting in the truck, and I said to Scotty Scott Ackerson, uh, "I said, hey, listen, um, have we done the first segment? And this is like thirty minutes away. Have
0: we written the first segment?
2: No. Have we done? Have we rehearsed the first segment? And Scotty said have you written it? And I said, you were writing it. He said, no, you were writing it. And I thought, holy shit. 30 so, minutes before the so, Super Bowl, and it's live. So I go into where, where, where and I switched the computer on and it was, and I, and I thought, holy shit. So I started writing <laughs> and, and writing, right. And then I thought, right, well, I'll cue JB and, and whatever. So I get the thing written, then I can't print it and it won't print, and it's sitting there looking at it, and I think, God, I it. finally, <laughs> <laughs> so I ripped the thing out, and and I have for some reason I've taken my jacket off, and my fucking pass is with my jacket. So this asshole won't let me onto the field, and so I'm I'm looking at New Orleans's finest, and I'm saying. Our company's paid two billion dollars. You better let me in. <laughs> so I sprint across the field, just as the opening we'll just... is rolling, and and and, and, and Scotty's going. Well, he'll get it done. So so JB's sitting there I'm throwing the piece of paper. Cue. So you
0: see your hand going in the frame, or
2: just a bit? No, we're on we're on the river, but we're on the boat. You know, yeah. the, the thing coming back. And, and I had a blue shirt on, which was black with sweat. And, and JB... JB did. JB did, like, I would have been a quivering mess. JB was magnificent, and, and he nearly got kissed. There was nearly a deep tongue kiss between the producer and the talent when he finished that segment. He was fantastic, and he just kept his head down, read the copy, waited for me to kill him, boom, 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 and we got through it. And, and, uh, uh, and it, yes, thank you for that. I, I'd, I'd totally forgotten about that. No
0: problem. Take me through the box. The score on the corner? What is that called?
2: Well, it, everyone's called it the fox box. Which okay, I the fox a, box. I, I prefer it as the hill box.
0: I um, prefer it as the hill box, too. This is an amazing story that I want you to tell. This is another thing, like Terry Bradshaw, where you had huge resistance <laughs> from people.
2: I could never understand it. The, the, the reaction to the, the, the fox box or the hill box... Was it was like this is the end of motherhood, and the sun's not going to come up in the east tomorrow. And and I'm thinking this is and like all the newspaper uh, pundits said it was the stupidest thing, and all the other networks said it was stupid, and make people turn off. And I'm thinking it's ridiculous. way. It it, it's, it it helps in and it it's there as a hint, not as a statement. And as my wife points out, my wife the MBA um, says that. That had I, when I dreamed it up, copyrighted it and then charged television channels a dollar a minute, I too could have an office like yours.
0: (laughs) So then you work with a guy named Stan Honey, who actually invented GPS. Yes. And he was working on this hockey puck technology. And he worked presumably along with you or in concert with you to create something so groundbreaking and this was something that was uncharacteristic of you. He developed the first down graphic marker football. in football. Right.
2: Well, so here's the story: is why we didn't use it, and why ESPN used it before we did. It was because of the cost. That there. Was, it was only
0: twenty five thousand a game. You were spending millions and millions of dollars it on was, things.
2: There was. There was. We were in a recession.
0: Come on.
2: No, 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 no. Serious. It was. There was, I was trying to make the point about saving money, and it was, it was 25000 but then you multiplied that out over the game, so it became expensive, and I, didn't, I, I, get, I get very defensive when, when there is a potential to lose jobs, and I always worried that if we weren't pulling our weight economically and we weren't making money, the sports division then, that, that I would have to downsize the department which I never wanted to do and I always felt that 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 making uh making a painful cut like and we didn't have the first down market for 2 years before we before we said okay we've got the money we can go with it so I felt that that was that was a, a decision made economically not philosophically or any other reason
0: tell me your biggest failure ever
2: oh there's been a lot um the one
0: that you you just you just had to pick yourself up. You oh, just the, took the, a beating. The worst,
2: the, worst, the worst thing I've ever done, it was- um, Besides this podcast. Besides the podcast, yeah. This, it was, It was I, I got this bee in my bonnet, um, it was about NASCAR, and that I didn't think that we were doing enough to work with the tracks. So I, I kind of woke up one morning and I thought, God, we've got to be doing something. It was during- it was during the, 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 the incredibly high point of American Idol. So I had this vision of Saturday night at the track, and there was 2,000 people there, and Speed Channel was doing this kind of like Idol ripoff. So I said, right, this is what we need to do. So we've got to get it done. Got to get it done. So I gave it to George Greenberg, poor George, and we started doing it. And the temperature was 27 degrees. It was horrible. So we did a series uh, of very bad acts in freezing temperatures with Carissa Thompson and Michael Waltrip, manfully trying to breathe some life into, and it was just horrible. <laughs> no, it was just it was just, mixing American and Idol and NASCAR. And, yeah, no, and it was, and and I thought, what would have happened had I not been so. Precipitous and and said get it going now and waited till summer and if we'd done it in May it might have worked but I, I killed it off stone dead it was it was it was that was really bad
0: wow tell me your proudest moment ever in your professional career
2: I think the proudest th- th- what I'm most proud of was the Super Bowl after 9 11 and it was down in New Orleans. And it was – I had it organized, so I was ha- having a huge party. I got them to move Mardi Gras forward, and, and I was going to put the boys – You
0: know you're powerful when you move Mardi Gras forward. Well,
2: was only a couple of days. And it was
0: – Did uh, you have John Madden make the call for you? <laughs> 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 bringing and, security and, guys and, out there. And I was going
2: to have the, the boys on this low loader kind of – and the crews either side. And I was going to – it was – I was going to get the, the guests to step on and be interviewed and then go and then 9-11 happens and everything changes. And it was the uh, it, w- it was an incredible night. And so when we'd done the security check, I sat down with, with Roger Goodell and, and Commissioner Tagliabue and Jim Steak. We started talking about the tenor of what the Super Bowl should be. And Paul had this, and Roger, had this um, uh, concept of Aaron Copeland's Lincoln Portrait. As being the musical theme, because Copeland had written that days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which you could equate to what had happened with 9 11. And so Jim Stieg and I, I was staying in a room at, at the hotel. And so Jim Stieg and I, and Jim, there was a Monday night, the Sunday night game on. And so Jimmy was going to Jim did all the Super Bowl organizations. So, so I ordered a couple of bottles of red wine and got a whiteboard in and a marker and away we went. So Jim was still out, and so that night, because of the attack, the Emmys had been moved, and Ellen DeGeneres, God bless her, was the host, and Ellen came on and said, don't bother watching the baseball game because we will put up the scores of the baseball game, so you don't need to watch the baseball game, just watch the Emmys. So whatever you do, don't watch the baseball game. I lost it. I rang up our master control. And I said, "Is there a, a is that Chiron down the back still, still there?" And Jack Simmons said, "Yeah, why?" I said, "Fire it up. I want you to put the I want you to put the the, the, the Emmy winners on the broadcast." <laughs> I said, "Do it." So and 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 what prompted the idea was Ellen said, "And they won't be telling you who who wins this Best Supporting Actress award." <laughs> the entire audience goes, hee, hee, he, hee, that I'll show you. So I said, Jack, you've got to get the Best Supporting Actress. So there's Tim <laughs> and Joe and whatever. And suddenly up comes the Super Emmy Awards 2002. <laughs> Beatrice Smith, Best Supporting Actress. <laughs> so, so, so Jim Steak says, and I'm on the phone to Jack. Okay. And I'm switching between the two. Get. Yep. And he said, "What on earth are you doing?" I said, "I'm putting up the Emmys." Wow! So World War Three happened, and some poor guy from CBS, uh, Jack said, "Oh, there's there's this guy from CBS who wants to talk to you," and he's called up and he said, "Stop doing it," and I said, "You started it," and, he's, and, he, and he, he said something really silly. He said, "No, no, 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 that was just Ellen saying that," and I said, "Pal." I know that in the Emmys and the and the Oscars every word is analyzed and put down. You wrote it. And you said that don't watch the baseball and I said so to me that was a declaration of war and I've accepted. <laughs> so boom. So no one spoke to me for about and then what happened, which was even worse that I didn't realize, and I've never been to the invited to the Emmy since, was that that that, that <laughs> you got to start broadcasting no, the no, Emmys. No, you no, got to no, get no, the rights no, no, actually, to the Emmys. Actually, that's that's not correct. I'm lying because Fox does it every every three years, but it was because the 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 the, the baseball game was going to the West Coast, so the and, and it was a delayed Emmy broadcast. Anyway, so what we did we we brought down the uh, for that telecast we brought down uh, the Boston Pops. Uh, I got permission from the the family, the Copeland family, to to bridge the. He he wrote two great symphonies, or he wrote, wrote a lot of great symphonies, but one was Fanfare for the Common Man with that fantastic open, and so I, I stitched Fanfare for the Common Man, first thirty two, onto the the the, the, the uh, Lincoln portrait. Renée Lerone produced this wonderful piece, and we got all of the presidents and Mrs. Reagan to voice it, and. Uh, 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 Worms produced this fantastic piece about the Declaration of Independence, and we got U2, and and behind U2 they did Streets of Shame with the names of everyone that had been killed, and, and, and why it was so so proud to me because to me it was a peon of praise to my adopted country, and it became it it, it and, and by reading the Declaration of Independence, and I which I felt was one of the finest pieces. Of articulation of civilization, I'd ever read that I'd always had a green cut up to them, but then I, then I went through, I became a citizen. And it was uh, so, and, and, and what I wanted to do with the telecast, I realized how important the telecast of the Super Bowl was to the world, to, to people overseas, to sports fans overseas. And I wanted to make everyone aware that everything was normal. God was in his heaven, all's right with the world. We've had this great tragedy we've been attacked by these cowards, and yet everything moves on. Nothing's going to stop this civilization. So that's what I was most proud of. of. Wow,
0: that's incredible. Okay. Last question. It's a two-part question. What advice would you have for somebody who wants to get in front of the camera, but just doesn't know how to get there and move the needle to get that, that stage? And then tell me your advice for like a young executive who's worried about the coal mine or worried about the studio apartment or worried about not having any money or if they're ever going to make it and what it will take for a young executive out there in any job or any capacity to get to the point where they pass so many people and they move the needle so much and gotten to the stage where you are at this point in time.
2: Well, first of all, I've never seen myself as an executive. When when, When HR gets me to talk to people, I always... Claim that I'm I'm an accidental executive, which I am. I never see myself as an executive. I see myself first and foremost as a, as a television producer. That's what I do. When 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 I fill in applications at, at, at the at going to various countries and it says occupation, I'm I'm, I'm a TV producer. That's what I do. So That's when you filled job. out
0: the Costco uh, uh, form, oh, TV producer, TV producer, absolutely, Got it.
2: Um, I, and I am a proud member of Costco, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it's uh, yeah. Um if you try and become an executive I don't think it's ever going to happen because uh if you're worrying about being being an executive um that, that that it gets in the way of what your job is the the reason why people get promoted is because that their bosses can see what they're doing is really really good and and if someone does something really well that the underlying promise is that you can do a whole bunch of other things really well, and so it's that that as you get through life, it's if you if you want to want to become a boss, uh, I I think that that you're inevitably bound to fail. That you should be more worried about being the best that you can be in your cho- If if you're a copywriter or if you're a, uh, if if you're making coffee, you know it doesn't matter. You just be the best that you can be. I think. I think the thing that gets in the way is people take themselves too seriously. And I think that that's a huge problem because if you take yourself too seriously, that that every slight cuts even deeper and and every that that, that what is is meant totally innocently can be seen as a put-down. and you start becoming infuriated and, and 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 feeling the world's again you and so that changes your whole mood. And when you're in front of camera be conversational. Um, what I say to my guys—well, uh, they're not my guys anymore because I've now moved out of the sports division. But when I talk to they'll my always dancers, be your guys. Oh, thank you. What? What?
0: I'll I, always be your. Guy. Oh, well,
2: thank you, Barry. I'm <laughs> I, I'm starting to well up now. Um, <laughs> it's it 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 gets back to my experience with Norm Lloyd, the cameraman, and it's if you can't visualize to whom you're broadcasting that you're not broadcasting properly. And if you're a producer or a director or an announcer, that in, you're not just shooting signals out, as Scott Ackerson likes to say to Pluto, they're going to someone. So so I say to the announcers, you're not just talking into a microphone, you're talking to someone. So visualize that person. Is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it your wife? Is it your husband? Is it your kids? Is it your next door neighbor? Visualize where they are. They're sitting down comfortably in a sofa they've 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 got an adult beverage or they've got a coffee and they're watching. So talk to them. And if you're doing the show, you've got to be aware of who you're doing that to, who you're producing that show for. And so be aware of how they're going to watch and 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 what they need to enjoy the show. so the, the it's the art of visualization in in broadcasting, I believe is totally important. So that when you're starting off being working on camera, it's not you're not looking at a piece of glass, you're visualizing your mom or your dad or your best friend or whatever standing by and you're having a conversation with them because the essence of television is a human being speaking, talking to another human being. It's that simple. And, and if you can't master that, you should go into something like quantity surveying.
0: (laughs) This has been really amazing. And one of the things that I get from you all the time and, uh, is gold because you always tell the truth you're always full on you don't care what anybody thinks you're a risk taker and if i were to
2: say three things that sum you up that's very nice of you i don't i'm I'm not used to this effusive compliments I'm, i'm quite touched
0: i'll tell you three more things when i think of you assume nothing
2: yes less is more yes
0: and be cool.
2: The three, that to me, they are the three commandments of a successful television broadcaster. Uh, going back to Kerry francis Bournemouth Packer, Assumption is the mother of all screw-ups. Uh, television, or anything in life, if you try and do too much, you inevitably screw something up. Uh, and be cool. Because if you're cool, you make good decisions. If you become hot-headed, you don't. So, to me, they are three rules, not only of broadcasting, but life.
0: Well, this has been amazing, totally incredible, very inspirational. It's been an honor having you. Well, thank thank you, you so much. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas To help them get where they needed to go. And he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away and in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to iKillJFK.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to the second half of our special Academy Award episode of Industry Standard featuring the two producers of the 2016 Oscar telecast. David Hill who we just heard from and our next guest Reggie Hudlin who I will give the proper introduction to. Reggie Hudlin is an American writer, film director and producer. He was born in Centerville, Illinois, the son of Helen, a teacher and Warrington Senior, an insurance executive and teacher. His older brother Warrington Hudlin is also a film director as well as an actor and producer. While an undergraduate student at Harvard University, Hudlin directed a short film entitled House Party, which went on to receive numerous awards, including first place at the Black American Cinema Society Awards. It would serve as the basis for his first feature film of the same name. After House Party, he went on to direct Boomerang, The Great White Hype, The Ladies' Man, serving sarah as well as television episodes from the modern family the office and the middle and he served as a reoccurring producer and director of the bernie Mac* show for three years then from 2005 to 2008 Hudlin was the president of entertainment for bt simultaneously he was the writer of the marvel comics series black panther most notably for the 2006 storyline Bride of the Panther, which saw the popular characters Storm and Black Panther wed. He was one of the producers of the groundbreaking Quentin Tarantino movie Django Unchained, starring Jamie Foxx, Leonardo DiCaprio, Christopher Waltz, Kerry Washington, and Samuel L. Jackson. And on January 10, 2013, he received an Oscar nomination for Best Picture for the Film. And what do you know, now he's the producer of the Oscars. Please welcome my guest, Reggie Hutland.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you, man. This is
0: so exciting to see you, man. I'm
1: glad to be here. Oh, we're going to have so
0: much fun. I have so much to talk about, but we're going to start at the beginning. Yes. Okay? Okay. So take me through your growing up, I believe it is, in Centerville, Illinois.
1: Yeah, I I was born in centerville but i would say grew up in east st louis either, like if you're a new yorker is the difference between like brooklyn and east new york you're go you go oh you lived in east new york that's really bad no 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 it's not that it was brooklyn oh that's bad but not as bad as east new york so centerville was this tiny village next to a small town yeah. East st louis is a small town but <clears throat> and it's literally i think the blackest city in america I grew up I couldn't be more fortunate with where I grew up and how I grew up. I feel I feel sorry for my kids who are growing up in Beverly Hills because they cannot have my childhood. And that's an honest feeling. Well let's let's talk about what's the difference between your childhood and the
0: childhood of your children.
1: <laughs> well, I I remember picking my daughter up out of her crib, looking out over the swimming pool and going <laughs> I don't know how it's going to work out for you, honey, because what, why should you ever want to leave? I couldn't wait to leave. I had all the motivation in the world to, cause failure was not an option. I had to get out.
0: Wait, stop there. So yes. what happens early on where that's embedded in you? Failure is not an option. Tell me the moment something that happened where you adopted that philosophy and why.
1: Well, you know, it's – again, it's a small kind of all-black town, right? And there was a big chemical plant owned by Monsanto, which technically was in the town, but they actually formed their own town. So they were subject to no laws whatsoever. So they would do these illegal emissions at night. So you would wake up choking and gagging, you know, but you couldn't see what they were putting in the air. So that makes you go, we should leave. God. So – and there's a million things like that. And, but at the same time, a place that is so culturally rich, like our house, right? Two doors down on one side is where Ike met Tina, <laughs> right? And Mrs. Bullock, Tina's mother, still lives there, right? Then two doors down on the other side is Brother Joe May, who's a really famous gospel singer, right? And he would go on tour with C.L. Franklin, who was Aretha Franklin's uh, father. So I had heaven and hell two doors down either way. <laughs> and, you know, so it, 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 and, and, and 10 blocks from my house is what Chuck Berry invented rock and roll, the actual nightclub. If you read Chuck Berry's autobiography, he talks about this club and you go, oh, this that, I drove past that every day on the way to, you know, the school or whatever. So, I mean, there's all this stuff there, right?
0: Was it a dangerous town?
1: It was a very dangerous town. And the weird thing, I didn't really realize it was dangerous until I went to college. Now, let's let's stop there for a second, because <laughs> this is what's, you
0: know, for those of you who don't know, uh, if I didn't mention it already, you went to Harvard University, yeah. the gold standard of uh, the number one college in the entire country, probably the world. Yet you're coming out of a place that's not the number one place in the world no. to live. It's and number one I, for a different reason. And I would like to get... <laughs> that's right. It's
1: like, in fact, you know, you like they just had a poll, like, you know, it's still the most violent city in America, East St. Louis.
0: Okay, so you come from the most violent... That's where I was trying to get to, but I didn't yes. want to say it. So you come from the most violent area in the world. Yes. you
1: Not in the you, world.
0: In in the United States. I'll
1: take East St. Louis over Beirut. Okay. <laughs> but in okay. the U.S. of A, we're number one. <laughs>
0: All right. <laughs> So you go from the number one, most violent place, <laughs> number one college in the country. Yes. And chances are not a lot of people coming out of East St. Louis are rolling into Harvard. That's correct. Okay. You're going to a high school probably that isn't exactly the uh, Santa Monica school district system. It is not so, quite that. So you you come out of there and you 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 have to work hard through high school, through all these distractions to get into Harvard University. Did you have that goal from the minute you went into high school? I am going to be in the best college ever. What was your What were your goals there?
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because I went to the local Catholic school, which was the best high school, uh, you know, in our town. It wasn't the best even high school in the area, you know. There, if you go over to St. Louis, there were some better schools, but still, you know, it, it's it's. So I remember I would walk uh, past the cafeteria and pretty much any time of the day there were a bunch of people in there playing cards, right? They're playing, they're playing tonk, you know, They're and, and, and it's looking there and I go, they're not getting out. I'm getting out. There's no question. I've got to leave this place. Now, my older brother, Warrington, um, had gone to Yale. So I knew it was possible. You know, he got a scholarship. He went there for summer school when he was in high school. And then, he applied there and got a and, and got a scholarship. So it's like, oh, that happened. Th- this is possible. So you know what? If he can do it, I can do it. I'm going for it. I'm getting out. So that was always my drive. And you know, I would go to visit my brother who's living in New York. And New York is awesome. You're reading the village voice and you know, you're you you know, you're whether you're in Harlem and you're past the Apollo and you know, oh, that's where you know, uh, you know, Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell used to speak. Or you're down the village and pass Cafe Reggio's. you go. That's where Shaft would have coffee. Cafe Reggio, one of the great, that.
0: one of the greatest spots. If you ever go to New York, you go right. to Cafe Reggio on McDougal.
1: Exactly. But if you hear the Shaft theme song in your head while you're there, it's even better. <laughs> so you know, you're like, well, I've got to get to New York, and this is where I must be. So I, you know, so I, I had previsualized. The goal so I, 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 that was it and that's a very important
0: too, because I think everybody listening and, and 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 watching you do have to visualize the goal absolutely you have to put the post it notes up, you have to really think about where you're going, what you want to do, and know that anything's possible, and so for you, so the first step is getting out you' got it
1: in fact, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, please but this, While you're in Jump the, jump around This is the thing I did when I was in college. Uh, My senior year, I made a business card, right, that said Reginald Huntland, writer, producer, director, motion pictures and television. Now, you know, I didn't say film and video because at the time, you know, it was a very independent, you know, you know, that was, you know, motion pictures and television felt like Hollywood. It felt like show business. So I made that card. I looked at it and I said, this card is a fraud. I am not this but I will one day live up to this business card.
0: Incredible, incredible! What a what a great story that is. That's that blows me away. So I, I got to go back because this is gonna <laughs> this is gonna all lead up to this, this is
1: all gonna lead up to that.
0: So you're at Harvard. Right. You don't you're not majoring in film and television at Harvard, are you?
1: Well, Har-
0: like what when you go to Harvard, what's your major?
1: Well, here's the thing: Harvard is embarrassed to have any arts program at all. There, like they're. They're like, look, come on, you know, let's, let's get serious. So they have this major called Visual and Environmental Studies. It's honors only, so you have to get a certain GPA to even be in the program. And it's actually a pretty good program because you study film, photography, graphic arts, architecture, and you specialize in those things. So I said, "Well, that's for me." So I study that. But I study a lot of arts, hmm. which which is great. And I um. And again, I, uh, one of, the, nice, one of the, the greatest things about my hometown, East St. Louis, is that Catherine Dunham, who's a famous dancer and choreographer, had started this sort of performing arts program for young people in the 1960s. Because when the riots were breaking out, right? So you have riots in Watts and riots in Detroit. Everyone said, well, clearly East St. Louis is next. And how do we stop those riots from happening? So they bring her in to, you know, uh, and she does amazing stuff, right? So uh, so I was already kind of in that mode, you know, from participating in her programs. So we go to Harvard, and um, I meet all these guys um, who are writers on the Harvard Lampoon. And we are very much kindred spirits, because I grew up, you know, devouring Mad Magazine and... Um, you know any kind, you know, national lampoon. Any, you know, watching the groove. I remember talking my mother into taking me to the Groove Tube when I was in high school, and you know, as an adult, she was like, "That was my, you know, the my worst moment as an as a mother." <laughs> I actually took you to see an incredibly an
0: R-rated movie,
1: right? Uh, you know, but not just R. It's you know, <laughs> there's a talking dick in the movie. <laughs> you know, there's dick puppetry going on in that film. <laughs> She was very embarrassed, but I appreciated it deeply because it was very funny. Um,
0: so uh, there's just something about sitting across from you and hearing <laughs> you say the words dick puppetry. That just kind of just moves you
1: know, me. It's, you know, dick puppetry. This, you know, it's it's always a winner. So. Uh, so, you know, these guys were, we were very much kindred spirits. Uh, Tell me about some
0: people who were at the Harvard Lampoon then that you might. Have worked with her, have done things like you have in the business. Uh, yeah, well, you do.
1: know, I, I'm, I'm just going to name just general people who are sort of at school the same time as me Lisa Henson, daughter of Jim Henson, who went on to be a big exec at Sony and now runs her dad's company. Um, John Mostow, director, did Breakdown, yeah. did U571 and, and Terminated 3. Um, um, uh, John Payson, who, you know, was you know, one of the first, you know, producer directors over at MTV. I remember, he was going, I'm getting this job at this new network. <laughs> really? OK. <laughs> you know, so, you know, we were all there at the same time. And, and in fact, one of the student films we did, because they would have these big class projects before senior year, you'll do an individual project. But before that, you do class projects. So one half of the class said, let's make a movie about people who work at night. I said, okay. so it's Boston in the winter and you're going to stay up all night filming cops and guys at a donut shop. And I was like, wow, that sounds brutal. So the Lampoon guys were like, let's go to Daytona Beach and make a movie about spring break. I'm like, I'm with that guy. I'm rolling with them.
0: (laughs) Which leads me to my next thing, which is a big thing for you and Mm -hmm. something that's really important for everybody listening is how do you get to the situation where you make your move, you do something that mm-hmm. that gets you to the point where people notice you? Now obviously, in East St. Louis, they notice you because you went to Harvard and your brother went to Yale and they say, hello, oh, they got out. So you, in that time, which was very rare, you decide to write and put together
1: a film of an original concept. Right. But you know what? It's just before that. It starts in East St. Louis. It's just before you get into Harvard, right? Because when I'm hanging out with my friends, right? And my, you know, your childhood friends are your childhood friends. You do dumb things together, right? Like, it's us all go ride our bikes, right? Because, you know, it was the summer. You leave the house when there's light and you come back when it's <laughs> dark. And there's no, do not come in the house again. There's a, If you're thirsty, there's a water hose, Drink If you have to pee, go in the alley and pee. Like, just get <laughs> out of the house, stay out of the house. So we would get on our bikes right now. My bike something was wrong with the brakes. Now you would think just fix the brakes, but somehow we just didn't get around to fixing the brakes that summer. So we're riding around. So you end up at the top of an incredibly steep <laughs> hill, right? So my friends, being my friends, just left me at the top of the hill. Hey, I reached down at the bottom of the hill. It's like, wow. Okay, I guess I'll go now. <laughs> so you ride down this hill and you're, just, you're like, I'm... I'm going to go into traffic. I'm going to die. I have no brakes. I can't control this. So I barely make the turn, and I drive over about a dozen people's yards, and then I finally stop, but the brake does, you know, bike doesn't fall over. And it's like, oh, my God, that was insane. And I go, that's a really good scene for a movie. And that's, and that's the difference, right? I was self-aware enough then that that horrible, embarrassing, near-death experience was good material. So I was filing it away. Wow, and and you know, and I was fortunate that I had great parents. I mean, to the point where I would go somewhere and adults would go, "You one of them hutland boys?" <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, pharmacy or insurance? Because it would be like my uncle had it, a pharmacy and my father sold insurance. Insurance. Your father's a good man. Your father's good man meant. Don't do anything fucked up. Do not embarrass your family name because it's a good name. So that's expectation. Right. Yeah. So I, so, so I brought that. So that's what gets you to Harvard. Right. You're, you know, you're, you, you've got a passion with, with no chance of it ever paying off anywhere. Right. But there's a passion that starts from childhood with no, Sense of direction, right? And then you f- find some possible way to get there. So you get to Harvard and you go, okay, now I'm in Harvard. I think I may be the one accident, but somehow I'm in here. And then you get there, and Harvard's great because Harvard does have this great reputation. There's so many smart people, and you realize there's different kinds of smart, right? And there's smart, like you grind it out, you work hard, you study hard, and there's like effortlessly brilliant. And you go, whoa. Even in the category of smart, there's people who are ridiculous, right? And then, so you go, well, you know, there's smart and there's really smart. And there's people who are kind of fraudulently smart, right? Who can study real hard and pass a test. But if you actually sit around and talk about politics, they don't know anything about politics, even though they got an A in their politics class. And well, you're a fraud smart. So you understand all these different kinds of smart. So the, when you go out in the world... You go, well, this is the same three categories of smart that you'll see anywhere. And, you know, like a guy like Chris Rock, he is the the highest category of smart.
0: No question about it.
1: He's got a GED. It doesn't matter. He's smarter than most people who went to Harvard. Right. So that's this. So you, that's a thing you learn that has nothing to do with the classroom, just socially interacting with people. Right. Um. But I guess the but for me, when you say, okay, I knew from my older brother who was already kind of working in film uh, in most of the independent scene before the word independent was even a term, right? He was like, look, by the time you graduate, you've got to shoot 10 minutes. That's as good as 10 minutes of any movie ever made.
0: Perfect thing that you just said. But you're doing that at a time when there's no YouTube. No. There's nothing. There's cameras that you're using that are literally weigh about 700 pounds, and they it's, have to be on your shoulder. It's and- un-
1: yes, and I lived on the opposite side of campus as where the equipment was. You're
0: dealing with three-quarter-inch tapes back then or whatever well, they you, are.
1: You would check out the camera, and it was this huge metal crate with no wheels or anything sane put on it, right? So I would carry this huge – it was like, you know, those machine guns. But
0: see. at Harvard, they would give you the opportunity to sign it out and do it. But before we get yeah. to this incredible short that <laughs> launched your career, something you created, you wrote your vision. Yes. Because your, your brother said, make sure you create something. Yes. That for those 10 minutes is as good as anything. And I say this to stand up. So I say there's mm. anybody doing video. You have to create holy shit moments. And if That's you don't. Right you might as well just pack it up and go home because it's got to be better than everybody else. It's got to be so far beyond because even if it's close, you got to get the nod. So you do this short, but what's your inspiration? What are the 10 minutes of certain films that you've seen right. before that, that you're like, okay, I have to make something that can compare. These 10 minutes have to compare to that and then talk about the, the mm. project and the name of the project. Sure. because I'm not going to spoil it because it's a wonderful story.
1: Well, I mean, I'm watching everything as a kid right and i mean i'm you know you're watching you know you go to the drive in theater to see fantastic voyage you know we'd go to the movies about 10 in the morning and you'd watch bruce lee's End of the dragon all day because what you have nothing better to do than to watch bruce lee there's no better use of your time than watching bruce lee all day long so you know so i'm i'm and, you know
0: and, what's so weird and i for <laughs> I, I am a, a a white jewish male mm-hmm. who Has no concept of the cultural thing that happens, maybe in East St. Louis. And if you were to tell me that you and your friends were going to see Bruce Lee movies, I wouldn't even think that that would be the case. Bruce Lee is
1: part of the Holy Trinity. It's Bruce Lee, Malcolm X, and Bootsy Collins. (laughs) That's what it's all about. That is manhood. Okay? That's the goal. If you can touch the hem of the garment of those three men, <laughs> then you're worth something. You're worth the air you're taking up. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> so, no, I mean, because Bruce Lee was a third world hero. I mean, he was, he was, there's no difference between Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali. Okay. I mean, and for people of color, I mean, when, in, in Return of the Dragon, when Bruce Lee fights Chuck Norris, that's as genius a, a movie scene as you're going to see anytime, anywhere. Right. First of all, they're fighting in the Roman Colosseum. Right. <laughs> so it says epic fight for the ages. Uh, you know, and <clears throat> Bruce Lee, who's this, you know, slender Asian guy. Right. And, you know, the big white hairy guy gets off the plane <laughs> with like that crazy, like polyester shirt. I'm going to beat you. right? So they fight. And, the first thing Bruce Lee done is rip the hair off of his chest. <laughs> and he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> That's a physiological racial statement right there. <laughs> and then Bruce Lee, as he's fighting, he starts dancing around. Now, not only is that clearly a Muhammad Ali quote, but if you're really down with Bruce, you know that Bruce Lee was the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong, Right. So I I did not know that. You don't know that. <laughs> uh, anyway, so so Bruce Lee's whole fighting style is influenced by, you know, kind of Afro Latin culture, right? Cause all that is the same thing. So it's all in there. So he's speaking to us. It's in cold, but it's loud and clear to us. Bruce Lee is our man and we're down with him. <laughs> so, so watching all this stuff, um, And I'm also watching because on PBS, uh, they have the Janice film collection, right? And Janice has all the classics of I mean, Jewels and Gems, Kurosawa, Truffaut, you know, all the you know, the classics of international cinema. And they were showing those every week. And they had this series called The Japanese Film with Edward Shower. And it was this very, you know, very serious guy, and he would introduce these films. So I was watching those movies in high school. And they, and later when I went to Harvard, my freshman year, I got the Harvard Crimson, the school newspaper. And it said, Edward O. retires. I was like, retires? I didn't even know he taught here, but I missed him. But this guy like shaped my whole childhood because of those movies I would watch on PBS. So anyway, so I'm watching all these movies. So there's three movies that really go, okay. I mean, there's, there's four. I'm going to, I'm going to say four. The first movie that says I'm going to make movies is when I see Tommy by Ken Russell, right? Tommy's underrated because Tommy is really the first real music video movie. I mean, certainly you got Beatles with Hard Day's Night, but Tommy is a rock opera. Like, and all, when you look at Tommy now, all the visuals, all this hyper stylization that Ken Russell does is what MTV is going to become. And it was rock music. It was Elton John, who we loved. And it was like, you know, musicals don't have to be like guys with a straw hat going, come on, my baby. Like, you can actually do music that you care about. So I said, I'm going to make a movie like Tommy with George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. So that was my mission, right? I decided that in high school. So I'll go, okay, but that's going to be hard, right? So then I see a bunch of movies that are super relatable to me. I see risky business. I see Animal House. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I see American Graffiti, and I go, well, these are just movies about us and our lives. These are about just kids going through kid stuff. So I like, well, I want to make a movie like that about my lives and the lives of my friends. So my brother had given me a diary because he was tired of me pitching ideas for movies. He says, "Just stop telling me. Just write them down." So I'm just, you know, so I was writing down all these ideas. So the summer before my senior year in college, I'm going through the diary and I'm collecting all these stories and I string them together, you know, for, for a script, for my, for my senior thesis film. And, uh, the last day of, 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 of summer, before I go back to college, I'm packing up, I've got the radio on. And as was a kind of a mental exercise because this is at the dawn of music videos. I would make music videos in my head of the song that I was playing. So Luther Van Vandross is on bad boy having a party. I'm like, Oh, this is a great song. You could make a great video out of this. I'm like, no, oh, that's a great movie. And that night I wrote the house party script in a night.
0: You wrote the house party screenplay for the 10, the 10 the minutes, 10
1: minute version that night Just like I've been working all summer on another script. And it was like, forget all that. This is it. And when it, and then that's the day, all the writing I did that summer was prep
0: for the true idea. One of the hardest things to do sometimes as an artist is to walk away from the other thing, all that work you've done. But when it really, really hits you like a stone, it becomes easy to walk away from
1: it. Well, the other work, I mean, again, like really, the other work was just prep, right? I mean, writing's a muscle. So you need to like lift weights every day, right? So you're writing, you're writing, you're writing. But then. And all that writing and all that conceptualizing has built your muscle up. So then you have an idea that is a, like a diamond bullet idea that is crystal clear and it just comes out. And all that work, all that heavy lifting you were doing pays off. And then I, boom, this is it. And it just comes out and it's complete. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's complete clarity. And you know it's right because it came out so beautiful. The same way like you date a girl and you date her for a long time and you fight and you get back together and then you meet and then you break up and you go, ah, and then you meet some girl and then you go, this is it, I'm going to marry you. And then you marry her.
0: Again, the, the failure inspiring success.
1: Yeah, well, you know how many times are things supposed to work?
0: So you do the house party, a 10-minute thing, and so I imagine you finish it off, and then there's this thing where you screen it for your class first. And so how many people are in your class? Well, it's like 10. 10 people, and you screen it, and do you you know when you screen it that you got something special there?
1: Yeah, it works. Uh, And my professor was rightly like, you know, there's fat in there. You can tighten it up, which is true. And in life, the the never-ending battle to get rid of fat.
0: Of killing the babies.
1: (laughs) But... (laughs) The fact is, it works, and the, and what's interesting is then I hear about this grant, right? Because there would be these grants for a little independent filmmakers from the government. So I was like, "Well, there's a grant for another, you know." But you can't apply; you can't get a grant for work you're getting credit for. So I say, "Well, I'm going to come up with another idea, and I'm going to apply for a grant." So I I I write my form and I send in the grant and I send in the clip, my movie, this show, and. I get the grant. And, I, and the thing is, I, I, I stay, I don't go home for Thanksgiving. I said, look, I got to do it now. So I'm going to stay here. How much is the grant for? Like right, 5,000 bucks.
0: 5,000.
1: All the money in the world. Because <laughs> when you don't have 5,000 bucks, it's a fortune. It is. <laughs> so, so I apply and I got the grant. And then I found out my professor had applied for the same grant. And I beat him. <laughs> but he was great about it. He was like, you're a professional filmmaker. You just got money to make a movie. I was like, there you go. So, so I make that business card.
0: <laughs> so take me through how the movie ended up getting
1: made and in theaters. Sure. So you know, I, after college, I take any job that gives me access to camera equipment right? Whether it's teaching or working in advertising, whatever, you know, whatever, right? But I'm still on this mission to somehow not only make movies, but somehow make movies in Hollywood. And there's no path to doing that. Like the black exploitation move, movement was long over. There was no really black filmmakers in Hollywood, but I've, I, I'm, I knew what I wanted, the movies I wanted to make were commercial. They had artistic integrity and they were commercial. So I, I figured I was going to find a way to get there. And then um, Spike Lee comes out with She's Gotta Have It. And we were all super excited. I was actually supposed to work on She's Gotta Have It doing sound. But like, again, I got another grant. So I couldn't do it. So we were all happy. Like, ah, you know what? And we said, man, it may may play in a theater for two weeks. Because that was as good as you could hope if you made a little independent film. You could have your movie shown in a theater for two weeks. So when it got shown all over the country for months and kind of, you know, suddenly it just changed everything. And suddenly Hollywood is like, oh, black filmmakers, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, are there any more of them? So um, an executive from New Line Cinema went to a screening of House Party. Who was that executive? Helena Echegoyen. And what level was she in that company? She was a junior executive. A
0: junior executive. Of course she was. Yes.
1: And she saw it and she says, well, I've heard about your movie and, you know, the film festivals that you and your brother put together. So you guys should come by and pitch. So I I, by that time, I had a feature film script of House Party because I had done some other Hollywood deals, which didn't turn into anything. Like I got hired to develop a movie for Janet Jackson in the time. I was like, that's great. Janet Jackson!" I was very excited. And then I was like, oh, my God, you've paid me money to write a script. I've never written 120 pages in my <laughs> life. All the writing I've ever done in my life didn't equal 120 pages. <laughs> so I wrote this script and it didn't happen, but I got paid more money than I ever could have imagined. And I said, with all this money, what do I do? I said, you know, this is enough money. You could buy a car. <laughs> but why would you buy a car when you could buy a computer? Because if you buy a computer, you can write more scripts and that will make more money. So I kept riding the subway, and I bought a computer.
0: You you bet on yourself, and Which you put all your cost money of in yourself. car self.
1: back then? That's but it right. It was like this is this is a good because I was writing stuff longhand. Then I would dictate it to the the person I knew with a computer. I was like, this is clumsy and awkward. So <laughs> I figured let's streamline that process.
0: So you go into the pitch. Helena was Helena her name? It should go in, and she brings you in, and you're meeting with who? Who are you pitching to? Um,
1: uh, a, a a a wonderful woman who actually, you know, who was incredibly helpful to me. And and uh, when I pitched it, uh, she said, this was, uh, you know, this is really interesting. And, you know, I met some of the other execs in the company and, you know, I gave them two scripts and then they picked one, which was house party. And they said, well, here, here's all these notes. And I read their notes and I said, I agree with one of these notes. I agree with, I disagree with the other three pages worth. Um, but I get your point, which is that this thing needs more work. So I'm going to do a lot more work on it and make it better. And once they got the direction I was going in, they agreed. They, uh, Jen, uh, Janet Grillo, who is the uh, a, a, uh, executive, you know, she helped me, you know, once she got the direction, she got it and gave me some more really useful notes. And we had a script that really worked. And then, you know, we put together a cast. And,
0: and so the budget of the movie was what back then? It
1: was two and a half million bucks. Originally, the first, we said, what's well, it's going to cost two and a half. They said, we'll give you 2 I'm like, why? Why? Be cheap on the half million bucks. So then after the first week, they're like, this is going to turn pretty good. So they gave us the half million bucks after that.
0: This is what's interesting is that mm-hmm. you sold them so much on your creative vision and everything mm-hmm. that they gave you the keys to the kingdom. They gave you the shot to direct, which is very, very rare. Normally, they give you the money and say, "Listen, step aside, young man. We're going to get somebody who we know who's directed seventeen films for us
1: it was It was an amazing thing. I am forever grateful to Bob Shea and the whole gang at New Line for giving me the for giving me the big break. It changed my life
0: and so I just want to talk about the casting process. Did you know all along you know that you were going to get chris Reed or did you or did no. these people just walk in one day and just blow you away like how did it happen
1: well i, I had done some music videos um uh I, I met this guy at one of my screenings named andre harrell who was trying to work at label and he goes we're gonna do big things together and I, we're gonna make movies and then i'm gonna start an empire." i'm like okay well just give me a music video i feel like you can deliver that so i did the first video for heavy d and the boys and i met all these rappers and then there's this great rap group called groove be chill and they were funny and smart and talented and hardworking because when we were rehearsing, they were the only group that showed up on time. I was like, <laughs> the guys who showed up on time are the guys to bet on. <laughs> so <laughs>
0: that's so true. So
1: I figured if I had to do a house party out of my own pocket, I was going to have them star in it. But then when we had a studio, they said, well, th- those guys aren't famous enough. We need big names. So anyway, so. Um, I go, I'm looking at Video Music Box in New York City. It was the only place you could see black uh, videos back then. And I see Kid and Play. I'm like, these look how visual they are. They're great. They can dance. And I, I know this girl who works at the, their management company. I go, how are those guys they're, they're nice guys. Do they show up on time? They always show up on time. <laughs> I'm hiring them. <laughs> so they come in, they audition, they're great. And... And I, and Bob Shay's like, well, who are these guys? I said, They're huge. They have platinum records. And I'm like, I hope they have platinum records. I think they have gold records, but I, I, you know, I, I, I blew them up. And then the guys are like, so we're not going to go on tour. Do you know how much money we're going to miss going on tour? I mean, we're losing money by doing this movie. I said, you'll work the rest of your life if you're in this movie. And I was right. That Friday we went out with the execs at new line and. Everybody was celebrating and one of the execs got a little drunk and said, we're in profits. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, we sold it to Showtime for $2 million. And we sold the home video rights for $2 million. And we're going to make $5 million this weekend. And we only, you know, you know what we made it for. I'm like, oh my God, we're in profits. So then, you know. A couple of years later, you get the statement because <laughs> we ended up making $27 million. So we made 10 times the money back just in the United States. Then it played all over the world and it had, you know, home and video.
0: then you got the statement with of the Forrest Gump accounting.
1: Right. And you just go, oh my God. <laughs> Wait a second. We six, haven't broken even yet. Six we, dollars. We still haven't made any money. So then we negotiated and we all worked it out. Of course you did.
0: So that broke open the doors for everything. And you're like the hottest guy and everybody wants to work with you.
1: It's great. We're getting calls from every studio. Everyone wants to work with us. And it's great. And we're meeting with everybody. And then we get a call from Eddie Murphy. And this is unbelievable to me because Eddie Murphy is a giant, giant star. And it's weird because Eddie Murphy is my age. And I can't understand that because he was on TV and I had a bedtime. (laughs) i mean i couldn't i couldn't even i would get sleepy trying to watch him on Saturday night live it's like somehow we're the same age i couldn't figure it out so anyway eddie meets with us and he's like you guys are funny you go for the joke and we should find a movie to do together and i never even imagined something like i figured i just make these little independent movies but now i'm talking to eddie murphy so we're He pitches me movies. I'm pitching movies. It actually takes a long time to come on the right thing. And then he sends me this script called Boomerang. And it's a romantic comedy. And I go, this is exactly what you should be doing. This is a great premise for a movie. We want, you know, this is what people want to see. And the studio was terrified. And in fact, in one of the most amazing moments in my career, the, the head of the studio, who was actually fired at that, this was, we're meeting with this guy, and he was fired. Uh, and he says, I don't know how you're going to make this work. You know, romantic comedy with Eddie Murphy. He's got that broad nose and big lips. And we're like, wow, wow. It was like V, when they take the mask off and then they eat a rat. It was like, you are dealing with Satan right now. This is, uh, this is just straight up evil. And the point was for us to punch him in his nose so we could get fried off the picture so we knew that and we did not punch him in the nose because the point was to make the movie and that is the win
0: that's a great advice for anybody listening is that sometimes it's better to take the punch
1: well you have to understand it this is checker this is chess not checkers and you realize when when someone does that why are they doing that they knew that was foul they weren't just doing it f- you know, for laughs, they were doing it to get us fired. So if that's really your goal, then I win by you being fired and me staying, which is what happened.
0: That's just an amazing story. So you go on to do Boomerang. It's an incredible success. So another person who is very close to you that you worked on the show that passed away was Bernie Mac and uh, you... Produced that show when you worked on uh, a number of episodes, you directed a number of episodes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Talk about Bernie. Talk about uh, what you saw—the talent, the his penchant for just creating moments that seemingly weren't there, and then they just blew you away.
1: Well, the great thing about being with Bernie is that he was always funny. Not in the sense that he was always on, like trying to be funny. But he was not a morose, dark person. Uh, and not only would we have fun during the week shooting, and we would occasionally we I don't know one time we shut down production because we were arguing over the five greatest bass players. <laughs> 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 like, no, we have to settle this right now. <laughs> but what
0: was? The, what were the bass players that you were arguing about, and he was arguing about?
1: Again, he was not giving proper credit to Bootsy. And I'm, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry the shot has to wait until we resolve this. We agreed on Larry Graham and, you know, Mingus, but <laughs> come on. Anyway, so, <laughs> um, so you know, and he would, at least once a week, he would have these enormous catered soul food lunch, right? And it's just like oxtail and, you know, llama beans and just an incredible spread. So I, I remember over the course of those three years, I gained an unbelievable amount of weight thanks to Bernie. Uh, eating these ridiculous soul food meals and he would tell stories and the stories were all spectacular. And it was all, you know, what he did before he got famous. Oh, I worked in social services. uh, You know, I, I was an auxiliary police. uh, And after three years, you realize, Oh, those stories are all made up. He didn't do any of that stuff, but he told them all with such plausibility that I'm believing your premise as you go into launching this funny real life story. And we would, and he would often have legends on the show. I got to work with Don Rickles because he had Don Rickles on the show. So I'm like, I'm working with Don Rickles. And after the first day of shooting, Don Rickles says, you're pretty good, kid. And he kissed me on the lips. (laughs) And you're like, a man just kissed me on the lips. But it was Don Rickles, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and we just had so much fun. Bernie was a absolute student of comedy. He studied all comics, all comedy styles, and we would talk about comedy philosophy a lot. And I was always happy to sit at his feet and hear his opinions about who worked and what worked and how things worked. Um, I, you know, I, I love that. I, I'm obsessive about that. I remember uh, when, when I first moved to L.A., Chris Rock came over to my house. So he's looking at the books on my bookshelves, and he sees my copy of Without Feathers by Woody Allen, and he goes, "That's a pretty old copy." I go, "Yeah, I got in high school." He goes, "Fuck you," because <laughs> it's just like to read Woody Allen's books, you got to be pretty hardcore. <laughs> I mean, you've got you've seen at least ten Woody Allen movies before you look at, look for the Woody Allen book. So that That's... was a, an extraordinary compliment by Mister Rock.
0: And so you <laughs> and you know, keep going on this theme. You get to work with these great people, and mm-hmm. then. In 2005, you hook up with Chris Rock after knowing him for a long time, mm-hmm. and out of all the people in this business, he decides that he wants you to direct his pilot episode and produce it with him. How did that come about? And uh, yeah, with well, somebody who I consider to be, again, I think of my present-day Mount Rushmore of comedy, and no uh, Chris Rock is is on that mountain
1: yeah i, I say uh, he's actually beyond comedy to me he's the br- he and and now his uh who worked on uh, his chris rock show and now is you know a, a true peer louis ck those are the smartest public intellectuals we have right now i don't know about those guys with phds and that stuff but no one is smarter about what's happening in society, about race, about class.
0: And absolutely. And then what people don't realize, it's it's almost two different paths. Because, and I agree with that about Louis. And Louis was my first management client ever that I ever had in my wow. life. Wow, there you go. When he was eighteen, and and he had it then. But the difference was, is Louis was working in a way that he always spent everything on whatever it was. If he ever got a check, like I remember, he had one of those those first mac computers the yes. square thing that was you know and he always would put it back and do and was always writing and creating and putting films together and doing things but he mainly got more credit and he made most of his money early on and throughout his career as a writer mm-hmm. and he never got the chance to be in front of the camera as much as he might have wanted to be because people didn't give him that shot whereas chris Actually, was a whole different story. Louis was a person whose career was, I'd say, gestating, if you will, yes. throughout. And he was working behind the scenes with the greatest people, just toning his craft throughout and getting paid for it. Chris had the fortune and the misfortune of having Eddie Murphy pen him as his protege after watching him do a five-minute routine at the comic strip about how Bill Cosby was a racist and Fat Albert was a racist cartoon. (laughs) And he was thrust into the special that Eddie presented him as protégé. And all of a sudden, Chris Rock, he has five minutes of material, and he's on the road having to do an hour of material and do whatever, and really was the kind of guy who just stood there with the mic in his hand, with the notebook on the stool. Mm -hmm. But then something happened, which is similar to you, where he proved himself. Mm -hmm. And that Mario Van Peoples said, you know what? Uh, I want you to play a crack addict Mm -hmm. in my movie. And in 1991, he cast Chris in a little movie with Wesley Snipes, Ice-T, and Alan Payne called New Jack City. And as uh, Charlie Barnett said to me one time, he looked at me and he said, I just got back. I'm seeing Chris Rock in New Jack City. And I tell you something, Barry. He played a crack addict better than I'm a crack addict. (laughs) And I am a motherfucking crack addict. (laughs) And he changed the listening in the world right then. Even though his stand-up was brilliant, he didn't have the time, and he was going on the road and not doing consistently well because he didn't have the time, he was thrust in that spotlight, and he had to grow up quickly and fast, And there were certainly highs and lows in that time until he got to the point where where you met him and he had all that full body, whereas Louis just was doing it from behind the scenes and got the shot.
1: Well, absolutely. Well, I think also what's tough, I think, for every comic post the Eddie Murphy era, I mean, again, going back to the Bruce Lee analogy, right? Like Jackie Chan had to figure out who he was because he couldn't be Bruce Lee. So he said no, I'll I'll use my comedic side to create a new persona because there's no way I can fill the shoes of the legend of Bruce Lee. And I think Eddie Murphy being who he is, having such an extraordinary broad set of comedic skills, you know, and Hollywood going, "Who's the next Eddie Murphy?" instead of going, "No, Look at Martin Lawrence. Look at Chris Rock. Let's appreciate these guys for who they are. They are not Eddie Murphy. They are who they are, and they're all extraordinarily talented. Um, I mean, I felt like there was a whole time where Hollywood took an old Richard Pryor script, gave it to Eddie Murphy. If Eddie passed, they would give it to Chris Rock or Martin Lawrence or any of these guys. And I would argue with executives. I go, do you understand what Martin Lawrence's persona is, his comedic persona? They were like fast talking con man. No, you think every black guy's a fast talking con man. <laughs> Martin Lawrence isn't every man. That's have you ever watched the Martin show? It's a hit. <laughs> you should watch it. People like him because he's a regular guy. That's he's just funnier. He's the funniest version of a regular guy ever on a TV show. And you know, and they would just look at you like you're just too into this. You know, you're just a little too detail oriented. Come on. Fast talking con man. Um, So, you know, and Chris, you know, he's watching the success of Def Comedy Jam and all this stuff. And I remember talking and putting my two cents in for I said, look, I think you're Dick Gregory. You know, you are smart, smart, smart.
0: For those of you who don't know, Dick Gregory, one of the first African-American stand-up comedians that broke through and did The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson.
1: Exactly. So Chris got comfortable in his own skin and became who he should be and, you know, did the hard work and honed it. And now it's, it's it, you know, and the whole world benefits. So when Chris Rock wanted to learn how to write screenplays, he went by this guy Nelson George's house because he was in Brooklyn, too. And Nelson said, "You should meet this guy chris rock he 's pretty smart, uh, and we became friends and so it 's just great when you 're friends and you 're all broke together because all you you have nothing but time to sit around and debate and sharpen your skills because when the moment happens and the opportunity asserts itself you 've got to make thousands of decisions very quickly and either you have sharpened your your, and defined your aesthetic or not. And so you better have spent your years being broke with very smart, very tasteful, very talented people because you will be drawing upon all that in the moment of truth.
0: So, so true. So true. So let's go forward, which is one of the most amazing movies, is Django Unchained. How did you get involved (laughs) in this movie and how does it... All go down.
1: Sure. Well, um Quentin and I have were friends for a long, long time, over fifteen years. And um I had done a music video with Pam Greer Uh Blue Magic was the group. And so we had uh uh, uh we had um Max Julian and Pam Greer as the love interest in in the video. So I got to know Pam and um so it was at an event where Pam Grier was getting an award and Quentin was presenting it. And Pam invited us to go to the event and we met Quentin. And he immediately launched into a conversation, not about House Party or Boomerang or anything like that, but a short movie I had done for HBO called Cosmic Slop. I wanted to do my version of The Twilight Zone. So I did this series of shorts that was sort of a backdoor pilot. And the, it was called Space Traders. And based on a short story by Professor Derek Bell, who was a professor at Harvard Law School, who actually quit the law school because they wouldn't give tenure to a black woman professor, which led to a big protest amongst the students. And the guy who led the protest was a young law student named Barack Obama. So
0: holy shit.
1: So, so, so when, so when Barack was running for reelection, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and you know, Fox is always trying to find a new reason. To explain why Barack Obama is the devil So they said, well, Barack at college Supported this guy, Professor Derek Bell Who was the worst guy ever And just to show you how bad he was Here's a movie based on His work that was done by Reggie Hutland, and here's how much Reggie gave To Barack Obama's campaign Because they actually looked all that up So I was part of the access of Evil <laughs> By Sean Hannity So I was like, I've made it <laughs> Am I being denounced By Sean Hannity I have finally done something with my life. Cool. I feel very productive. <laughs> Bill Cosby was always
0: famous for saying that if, <laughs> if they're saying all nice things about you, you're doing something wrong.
1: Absolutely. So I and you just, you know, you know, judge a man by his enemy. So if like if they think I'm a bad guy, I, I'm doing certain. So anyway, so <laughs> so anyway, he was just like, well, why would you make that as a short for HBO? That should have been a feature film. You blew it. I'm like, wow, yeah, you're kind of right. Okay, hi, good to meet you. So, <laughs> and we just became friends. And whenever we see each other, we just debate about movies because that's all we really care about. We would just spend hours and hours on that.
0: Tell us one debate that you'd have that you remember well, with Quentin. Well, I'm tell you the
1: debate that led to well that set up Django and Shane. We're at an Oscar party uh, at the at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel, and I see Quentin. He goes, so uh, you know, I need mean, you know, and we get into the debate about slave movies. And, he, you know, he's like, you know, oh, you didn't hurt you didn't like that? said I say like, well, no. I, hey, how do you even know I didn't like that movie? But no, I didn't like that movie. So we start going on back and forth. And I say, to me, there's only one great movie about slavery, and it's called Spartacus. And until you make a movie like that about the American experience, I'm not interested. So, like, mm. <laughs> so we go, we argue some more. I said, look, I, I, you know, he was naming other films. And I said, look, those movies are very well intended, right? But... None of them satisfy me personally as much as Fred Williamson and the legend of nigger Charlie. Now that's a movie. And he was like, I have nothing to say to that. I go, I know. I'm like, oh God, I finally won one with this guy. He's tough. <laughs> He's very smart, very tasteful. So that was it. That was the end of the conversation. Till fifteen years later. And, you know, we, we get together. He's, you know, I'm very lucky. I get to see his rough cuts or, you know, new scripts when he goes, Hey, man, just finished a new script. Come by the house. I'm having a little party. Great. Come by. Um, and, like, you know, a gang of people there finally winds down, like, into the night. It's me, the RZA, Quentin, and Warren Beatty. Quentin gives me this phone book of a script. Poof. And he goes, You planted the seed, this is the tree. I'm like, what? And he reminds me of this conversation we had had 15 years ago about slave movies. And I'm like, are you serious? And he goes, yeah, well, just read it. Tell me what you think. So I go home. I'm reading it. He's blowing up my phone. Hey, what do you think? What do you think? You so I call him back. I love it. Like, really? <laughs> I love it. It's so great. And he goes, do you have any notes? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so we talked for a half hour, and I'm talking about you know, I, you know, he goes, oh, those are good notes. I like, go, oh, well, thank you, man. I'm so happy for you. So glad to know you're going back to work. Can't wait to see the movie. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. We're doing this together. And at this point, I'm like, nah, you're just gassing me. up. like, no, 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 I talked to Harvey Weinstein. I talked to Stacey Sher. Everybody wants you on board. I'm like, then you realize this is happening. And there's a, there's a, pl- uh, this is happening you're the last person to find out. You're you're part in the plan, but the plan's moving forward unless you stop it, right? So I go, well, look, let's go. So a week later, we're in Louisiana scouting locations. It just that was it.
0: So let's talk about a few moments that I think our audience will be excited about hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, insert the truth serum in your veins for a second and tell me your biggest professional disappointment.
1: Wow. Well, you know. What I found sort of as a rule is that when I do stuff I'm genuinely passionate about, it tends to work on one level or another. Even things that may not be hit, people go, oh, man, I love that thing, and I'll get another opportunity as a result of it. But when I do stuff that is the smart thing to do, it fails. And so basically what I've learned is I can't sell out. Not that I'm above it. I just can't make it work for me. So I've tried to sell out and failed so I can only do stuff I'm passionate about. And you know. so I just try to keep that as a rule.
0: What was the failure that made you realize that definitively? Your biggest disappointment or failure or whatever it was that that made you realize I can't sell out anymore.
1: Or or even a tip. Like when well, I I did this movie called Great White Hype, which a lot of people really like, and I really like, and I made a lot of fantastic professional relationships out of it. But unlike House Party or Boomerang or uh, or even Baby's Kids, it just it it you know it didn't click with audiences the same way. And I was like, wow, I liked it because it was it was a smart idea, and we had a really interesting ensemble of actors and all that, but it didn't work and i just thought well because it something about it wasn't organic to me and i just thought you know well that's the lesson you you got to do stuff that's organic to you and like i say i don't simply measure financial success like i did this i, I wrote comic books for marvel for many years just cuz i'm a big comic book head and so the black panther series we turned into an animated series I actually greenlit my own book while at BET, we decided to turn Black Panther into an animated series. And then I left the network and got on board as a producer. So one of those weird things, I did all three jobs on, on that series. Um, and like, you know, by the time, you know, the network was putting it on, they were very reluctant because I was the outgoing exec. So it was, like, oh, that's the previous regime. So they kind of put it on at midnight. They didn't really promote it. But it got huge ratings. And was like became a trending topic on Twitter every time it aired, and the DVD became the biggest seller in the Marvel Knights animated line. So it had this extraordinary success, even though it was sort of a stepchild project.
0: But there you go; you have your biggest disappointment and your proudest moment all wrapped into
1: right. And I remember, and that night I was over at Quentin's, and he, you know, gave me the Django script. You know, the RZA was there, and the RZA was like. Tell the to quit, man! That Black Panther animated series that was the best thing ever, and you just go, well, look, here's this guy who I respect as an artist, the rizza raving about this animated series. So, when someone whose work you respect respects that thing, then you know what that thing was absolutely worth it.
0: Absolutely. Talk about all your experiences in the business are drowning in the ocean. You can only save one is that. Holy shit. Moment would oh, be that, 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 that chapter, that highlight chapter that when everybody reads it, it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe that thing happened or that situation went down or,
1: mm-hmm. well, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of fun in the business. Uh, I would, you know, it would be between House Party and Boomerang. You know, House Party was a movie I wrote myself and, you know, directed my first movie and it was a perfect drama-free production experience. It was fantastic. At the same time doing Boomerang with the biggest star in the world, you know, and convincing the studio to hire people who I thought were enormously talented like Chris Rock and Martin Lawrence and Halle Berry um David and Greer, and they were all kind of like, really? You don't want to get the guys from a different world? Nah, I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and, and telling them, I said, look, one day people won't believe that all these people were in the same movie. And, you know, that happened sooner than we thought. And every day was just fun, fun, fun. We had an extraordinary time. And, you know, but Jenga was the same thing. Um, uh, we knew we were making history as we were making the movie, uh, and then we're sitting in the Oscars, and at one point I saw Covenzene, uh, who, you know, Wallace, who had, was there, nominated for Beast of the Southern Wild, and there was Denzel, and I said, guys, let's take a picture together, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we did this picture on my on my you know on my phone, and it was just like this is crazy, we're all here nominated for an Oscar. It is crazy.
0: And from the the humble beginnings, and the great part is St. Louis.
1: I got a ticket for my mom. So my mom was there. And believe me, there's nothing better than your mom going to the Oscars. It's better than me going to the Oscars. <laughs>
0: well, I think it uh, it was a step up from the Talking Penis movie.
1: Yes! See, that Mom, it all there. worked out. See,
0: see, there was a whole full circle <laughs> where you gave her something Thank back. Thank you for
1: the groove tube. Here's my payback.
0: There you go. <laughs> Lastly, I'd love a two-part question. I'd love to ge- for you to give uh, advice to uh, a young artist out <laughs> there who's... In a similar situation than you, uh, mm-hmm. maybe growing up in a small town, they can't see a way out. They, they don't know where to turn, but mm-hmm. they, they know they want to do this. They know they want to be in the business. They know they want to be a comedian or an actor or mm-hmm. a filmmaker. What advice would you give to somebody in that situation, and what do they have to do to break through? And similarly, since you were a president of a network... Mm-hmm. What advice would you also give to young executives who need to move up the ladder and want to get to the next level? And you can probably take that one first and do the art second.
1: <laughs> sure. I mean, for the, for the executive side, I mean, I, I always feel that, I mean, I felt this way when I was running a network. I feel like there should be change jobs day. <laughs> So the people who work in ad sales should work in development. And the people who work in development should be, you know, an AD or PA on a set. And the ADs and PAs should, you know, sell advertising. You know, like everyone should understand everyone else's job because if you only see it from one perspective, you're just – you're not going to be as as effective as really understanding every part of the animal. So – I, I can't encourage people enough to really try to understand the whole of the business. And one of the great things about working at Viacom was that they built their reputation on being creative first. And we would have these big corporate retreats, and they told this great story about South Park, which started as a video greeting card – they said, oh, let's make a pilot out of it.
0: That was one of the things we talked to Doug Herzog about on
1: the first podcast. The pilot tested terribly. And they looked at each other and said, oh, let's put it on. Like, if you have a golden gut, and I love testing. I love hearing what an audience l- likes and doesn't like. But at the end of the day... You have an exec anyone can like respond to people applauding or not plotting to graphs and charts. Do you have the golden gut that says, this is the right thing to do, and we're moving forward. That is the ultimate test of your job. Can you see past? Can you be more than reactive? Uh, for the young person out in the in the hinterlands, wherever that might be? that lonely feeling that it's just you, there are thousands of people who feel as lonely as you do for the same reasons that you do. Right. And maybe you don't feel so lonely now because there's social media. So you can get on Facebook or Twitter or something and you can find like minded people. But usually when you talk to folks, they feel very, very isolated and understand that the top of the mountain you're trying to climb is full of people who had the same experience as you did. Here's the difference between those who make it to the top of the mountain and those who don't. One is talent, okay? Because just because you want something doesn't mean you're talented enough to do it, right? Talent is a real thing. Now, you can develop it, like you can have the raw talent to be a good baseball player. It doesn't mean you're going to be a great baseball player. You actually have to work hard at it. So whatever you like, read the tipping point, By Malcolm Gladwell, realize that whatever it is you want to do, you got to put in at least 10,000 hours to even be a contender at being good at what you want to do. And then if you hone your talent, then hopefully that honing means you have the other thing you need, which is will, right? Will is the thing that gets you up in the morning and you know, you keep doing it. Will is the thing that says, I'm not going to the party. I'm going to sit alone in my crappy room and write. Will is the thing that says, I'm going to show up five minutes early because I really want this. And I want the person that I'm meeting with to know I want this. So even if I have to catch three buses and cross a highway divider, I'm going to take three buses and cross a highway divider to be there early. So those, I mean, and often, very often, will can be more important than talent. Now, I know we have all worked with enormously talented, self-destructive people.
0: Yes, we have.
1: Okay? And it's nothing more tragic than those people who cannot stop. They go, oh, I shot myself in the foot. Let me aim at the other one so I have a matching set of holes, (laughs) right? (laughs) Meanwhile, the person... Maybe not as talented as that other person who shows up early gets the job. True. Right? Why? Because they showed up. They knew their lines. You know, that's speaking metaphorically, whatever it is. Like you're, you're there and you're prepared and you will get the opportunity that the more talented person who doesn't have their act together blows. So yes, you can, let's say you fairly assess your talent and you go, I'm I. I'm not at the bottom, not at the top. I'll keep working on my talent, but my talent is what it is. However, what you can control is the willpower and the discipline and the professionalism that can still put you on top. So those are the things that you control. One of the quotes from Django Unchained that Mm
0: -hmm. that stands out to me and um, is the quote, in my world – You've got to get dirty. That's right. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get dirty. Something of that nature is how I remember Oh, that's it? And it comes full circle for me here talking to you because back in the beginning, you got your hands dirty. Mm -hmm. You got into it when nobody else was doing it, and you visualized what you wanted, and you gutted it out. And then when you got to college, you gutted it out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then when you were working on something for a long time, you and you thought of another idea, you said, fuck it, I'm going to cut loose and do this. Mm-hmm. And you went with your gut all the way through, and it's served you amazingly well, and, and you're one of the most amazing respected people in the business and oh, thank uh, you. and you film television president of network writer creator producer you work with some of the greatest stand-up comedians the greatest actors the greatest directors and and I tell you I have been mesmerized by talking with you and I know the audience listening to you and watching you will feel the same way I'm so grateful you came it was an honor and thank you so much for coming
1: No man. thank you Barry
0: Well, that wraps up our special industry standard Oscar 2016 edition with the two producers that were guests on this program, David Hill and Reggie Hudlin. As always, thank you so much for listening and for being so supportive. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Ted Zepnikowski from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Congratulations, Ted. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Jessica of the September 24th variety. September 24th, 2013. The heading reads, very refreshing, seems more about sharing with the audience than trying to impress them. I like it. Five stars. She writes, great insight, refreshing to hear someone genuinely focused on wanting to share information, inspire people, and bring the listeners inside conversations they might not be exposed to otherwise. Very cool. Look forward to more shows. Well, thank you, Jessica, of the September 24th variety. Congratulations. This has been another episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
2: They say it's the glory, the house screaming day,
1: to put you on shoulder. Walk you to fame You'll get all the money
2: Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer. Stay they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same